Hello there. You're listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for 10 Cloverfield Lane. My name is Tom Chick. I'm here with Christian Mifliski. It's Christian Walker Morangi. And with a 10 Cloverfield Lane synopsis, what? Kelly Wan. Oh, 10 Cloverfield Lane synopsis. Well, that'll be later. Wow. Before that, a 10. I'm, I'm just so eager for it. A 10 Cloverfield Lane tagline, Kelly Wan. Uh, resident. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I had to think about it for a minute. That was good. That's good. I like that. Now, the fact that you opened with a strong one makes me think maybe you don't have any more. Yeah. John Goodman's scariest performance since Coyote Ugly. I don't understand that one because I haven't seen that movie. Oh, what? It's minor Piper Pirbo, really. <laughs> That's the best phrase ever. <laughs> it's opening by Piper Pirbo. She was a minor during that one. Uh, it, it's like a Desmond episode from Lost. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly One, because that's exactly what I thought of. And I was like, really, J.J. Abrams? Really? Yeah, him and his pits. Yeah. Now we have to talk about Lost. Great. Oh, Dingus, there's going to be a lot more where that came from. All right. Uh, I'll just be I'll, I'll lend a lot more. <laughs> Fortunately, actually, he was not involved. Uh, but there was plenty of Lost going on here. Uh, Kelly Wan, that was a great tagline. Do you have a fourth? Normally, these things travel in threes. Uh, in disappointing follow-ups to horror classics, Emmy Winstead goes for the hat trick. What's the first one? I know the thing. What's the other one? Final Destination 3. No, that's the... That's no, that one's good. One? I know. Oh. No, it's a roller coaster one. This is oh, yeah. Right. This is it's not right. what I thought was going to happen with the It's Likes. Not at all. I thought, oh, man. Really? Yeah. Well, there's some of, it's like a lot of things. There's, there's a fifth one. <laughs> oh, yeah, give it to us. What do you got? What's the fifth one? That was it. I like, it's like a lot of things. Oh. <laughs> exactly. I like that. It's like a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kelly, one, before, uh, before we talk more about Tim Clover. About Ten Cloverfield Lane. Why don't you read an IMDb plot synopsis and see whether Dingus can guess the movie first or I can guess the movie first? All right. This is part of a theme. That's your hint. Should you tell us the theme beforehand, or we just have to figure it out? Um, one of the taglines is a is a hint to what the theme of this will be. I think I got yeah, right. Tom Tom got all the taglines, so he's going to get this. He got them. Yeah, he got them, you know, got them, except for the first one. He eventually got that one. Yeah. He's exceptional. Um, (laughs) Survivors of a nuclear attack are grouped together for days in the basement of their apartment building. The Divide. Yeah, I think this wins. Yeah, that's my under. Tom, you weren't even trying. I was going to wait and see. I was thinking, as you were reading it, Kelly Wan, I was thinking, there's no way Dingus will know this. I'm going to let Kelly Wan get a little farther so I can narrow it down. And then Dingus jumped in, and he just, like, stole my kill. He nigelooted my kill. Is it Tom Clancy's The Divide? (laughs) Gotcha. I actually know. It's it's Xander Jens? Night Dingus. Xavier Gens. Xavier Gens. Xander Gens. Is he in relation to Xander Berkeley? 
Yes, Xander, Jim. that's how that's how names work. Xanders are their first uh, surname. That's a girl's name. You're a girl's name. Oh. Oh wait, you are. D- Tom Dingus, etc. If I have to separate you two, I will. Uh, Dingus, what movie did we see this week? Tell the folks about it without... Now, be very careful, because certainly the people marketing this movie are very careful. So you be careful, too, Dingus, when you tell the listeners what we saw without spoiling anything. Let's keep, right. let's keep an air of mystery about it. Go ahead. All right. This Get is... it? Air. Because the chemical attack. Because the air. Yeah. Air what song. movie, Kelly Wan, does not have air? Name one. Uh, Gravity. Nope, you can't do it. Of course it has air. There are no movies that take place in a vacuum. Movies abhor a vacuum, Kelly Wand. Uh, That part of Ant-Man where he's in the vacuum cleaner. That's a movie. (laughs) Take that that chip. (laughs) That part was like gravity. You did just make a a great short film, Tom, though, called Vacuum. Fantastic Voyage, because they don't go into the lungs. That's where the air is. So, that one, too. Um, what do you think they're breathing? Up the Academy. You think that's air you're breathing? The Matrix. <laughs> that's what I was leaning They're towards. not breathing I air. I didn't have to put it's it right on the nose like that, though, Kelly Wand. Oh, uh, you want me to do noses? Movies without a nose in it? Chinatown? It's got a nose. So you think, you think Roman Polanski actually, actually removes his nose in Chinatown? Basket case? He does a nosectomy on Jack Nicholson. No. Yeah. That's how... They didn't fake anything back then because they didn't have CG yet. Dingus, so would you please save me? Notes. Save me from the predations of Kelly Wand. Isn't it depredations? It's both. Uh, In this case, Dingus, save him quick. Oh, good lord, I cannot. Oh. This week we saw Ten Cloverfield Lane. Ten Cloverfield Lane. Oh. Did someone hours? screw that up before? No. Oh, okay. I, I was afraid I was well because I was I was thinking is it Street Lane Boulevard? I'm pretty sure it's Lane. Maybe I should look it up, and I forgot to look it up. So yeah, I wanted to make sure. Cloverfield I Boulevard. No, I maniac. just felt compelled to say it twice because of the uh, mailbox. Anyway, a 2016 American psychological thriller, drama, horror, mystery. This is not a sequel, but a blood relative movie. Way too many spoilers in that dingus. Way too many spoilers. But go ahead. I'm really sorry yeah. about a bunker mentality. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Spoilers. I know, it's terrible. It was directed by Dan Trachtenberg. Arguably also a spoiler. And written... What? Because then you know know it's going to be similar to the short he did about Portal. Right. Um, (laughs) Or the the podcast he did about a hundred other movies. Uh, And written by uh, Josh Campbell, Ampersand Matthew Stukin, and... Damien Chazelle. Hmm. Almost Lindelof's first name. Did you guys see that coming? I did not see that coming. I don't know who that is. Do we, should we know who he is? Yeah, he's the director and writer of Whiplash. No, oh, yeah, I did know that. No, no you think has made that up. That can't be true. I'll never was, believe you. He originally that guy almost was, made this. He started directing this movie, yeah. and, then, and then when Whiplash got picked up, he went, uh, went off into yeah. that. Wow. Is that, wow. Yeah. That is amazing. It, yeah. It, uh, but talk about not my tempo. Jeez. Exactly. <laughs> you think he made the right call? <laughs> I don't want to spoil it just yet, Kelly Wontang. Is he leading or is he dragging? Um, <laughs> it stars John Goodman, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Mm. Yeah, I like her. Mm. John Gallagher Jr. Mm. 
Tom Wilson. And Bradley Cooper. Uh, don't pretend you don't know how to do the, the wrong version. <laughs> I hear you pretending. That's what it really was. Uh, did you guys recognize Ooh, Bradley no. Cooper? Like, did it take you out of the scene? Were you immediately like, that's Rocket Raccoon? Like, did, no, did you guys catch no, really? No, oh. Yeah, till the final credits. No, I totally caught that. Kelly Wan, did you catch the, and Dingus, you're the one who normally catches the celebrity voiceovers. I'm surprised that, 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 that one didn't. It was someone else's voice in German in the one I saw. Oh. So no, I didn't catch it. <laughs> that made it harder to catch. At the well, end, Dingus- I saw his name and went, oh, that's who that wasn't that I heard. Uh, Dingus, give us the rating. What, what, can kids go to this? Give that's, us the rating. That's who that wasn't. Um, all right, 10 Cloverfield Lane is rated PG-13 mm. for thematic material, including frightening <laughs> sequences of threat with some violence and brief language. Frightening sequences of threat with some violence. Wow, yeah. not of violence with some threat. Or I'm wondering how they determine which one is the primary characteristic and which one is the with modifier. Yeah, yeah. yeah they break it down into scenes. The original Cloverfield, by the way, was PG-13 as well, with violence, terror, and disturbing images. But <laughs> did not have threat. With the yeah, no, no threats in that. Uh, Kelly Wan, did the MPAA miss anything for the, re- the rating that you feel should have been in there in the disclaimer? Uh, uncertainty. <laughs> psychological lighting. <laughs> And Bradley Cooper is Ben. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane uh, opened in the number two spot because Zootopia was busy enjoying its success for a second weekend. Zootopia was number one with 50 million. 10 Cloverfield Lane opened at number two with 25 million, which is about half, by the way, of the opening weekend performance of the original Cloverfield movie. Cloverfields likes Utopia because it's got talking animal in it. Okay, what I, gonna say? That made no sense, Kelly Wand. What I was, what I was gonna language. say. Hopefully, it's another cynic poster, though. Uh, what I was gonna say is that on Metacritic, Ten Cloverfield Lane is at seventy-six. That's wow. on Rotten Tomatoes, Kelly Wand. You just wait till you hear this. On Rotten Tomatoes, this is a percentage of reviews that are positive. On Rotten Tomatoes, Ten Cloverfield Lane, ninety percent. Uh, big, big hit with the critics. Oh, wow. 90? 90. 90 that's what right. was the first one at? That's two points shy of Fury Road, if I'm not mistaken. Was it Fury Road, like 92%? Well, I thought it was 96 or 98. Oh, you know what? You're right. I think you guys are right. Yeah. So at any rate, it's up there with Fury Road, of course. Yeah. Wouldn't you know? Cloverfield 2. 10. Well, Kelly Wand, what, now let's go ahead. Let's Warnfolds. Kelly Wand, why don't you go ahead and spoil it by telling us everything that happens in it. Maybe just in short form, spoil the whole movie with, I don't, I don't know, like a synopsis of it. <laughs> That's your net guess what it's called? <laughs> I guess if Kelly Wand were to do a 10 Cloverfield Lane synopsis, it would be called the 10 Clofopsis. Hmm. I don't think you really think it would be called that. <laughs> no, I don't. I definitely do not. But it is. You guess oh, right. Wow, wow. really? You added a twist there in the middle that I never would have expected. Wow. Or I, or I just changed it on the fly, brain scan style. <laughs> All right, but, Kelly, give us our 10 clofops. Wait, um, yes. just before I forget, mm-hmm. Cloverfield the Monster was like they picked that name because it's the name of a street in Santa Monica. Right. Anybody right. who drives out the 10 yeah, to Santa Monica sees the exit, right, and that's where their production studio was, right? Right. Yeah. 
But the monster. By the way, it's like calling Jaws. It's calling in the, the shark in the movie Jaws. Jaws. The monster in Cloverfield is not named Cloverfield, is he? No, he's named Bruce. Sh- Bruce. Yeah. Was the sh- <laughs> was the shark named Jaws because of the street that the studio was on? <laughs> Look, That's they it. optioned. That was the op- way they they hid the production from people by calling it Jaws. They optioned a novel from Peter Benchley. They're stuck with the name. What are they going to do? Maybe that's his nickname among sharks, though. <laughs> so sharks talk. Here comes Jaws again. Oh god! And yeah, because he, and he's like the chatty one, and that's why his nickname. He always brushes his teeth. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think is if you've seen where uh, when Brody throws that air tank into his mouth, they actually had to take uh, uh, chicken breasts and shred them and stick them between the fake shark's teeth to make it look like he'd been eating Quint. Uh, right. He, he does not brush in that movie. Yeah. Well, well, he obviously flosses if they had flat. to do that. He, I mean, the the actual shark flosses if they had to actually put chicken breasts in there. Yeah, I the, love that detail, though, that it was chicken, that they actually gave him chicken. <laughs> so the shark could eat Quint, and then he could actually say, tastes like chicken. Uh... <laughs> Didn't the other sharks, after Jaws, did his shenanigans go... Weren't they mad at him, like, dude, you're drawing a lot of attention to all of us in the water? <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been swimming under the radar all this time. Yeah. Well, real sharks, certainly. I mean, they're, they're, they're literally... Well, I mean, there was this... Uh, Jaws skewed the public perception of sharks quite a bit. Right. That's So, yeah, Peter Benchley eventually admitted that. So, yeah, right. shark, sharks are in terrible danger right now, actually. Because yeah. of that, I mean, partly because Everything of that, is. but also because of shark soup. Everything but jellyfish. They owe and, us a huge debt. And as we know, the most dangerous predator is man. Mm. Speaking of mm. taglines. Kelly Wan, why haven't we heard the tin clophopsis yet? What's going on here? I'm sorry, you said Jaws, and I was thinking about this. So. <laughs> I know, right. Tin cloverfield, tin cloflopsis, what'd you say? You, what you just said, that's it, I got it. Tin cloflopsis. Yeah. All I right, think it should be the ten coflopsis lopsis. To coflopsis. To flopsis. Warning, the following is based on a German dub of the movie I watched baked and drunk while German girl whispered translations to me. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio stares out her window oh. at a cloud. Oh, God, really? She's all, fuck that thing. Packs some pantyhose and fashion magazines into a suitcase and moves away. On her way out the door, the phone rings. Bradley Cooper's voice is all, Hey, there's a really cool cloud outside. I can't wait to come home and try and describe its shape to you using my hands. He hangs up. She looks sad, then leaves and drives towards some trees. While she's driving, Bradley Cooper calls again. We learn from her phone screen that Mary Elizabeth's character's name is Ben. (laughs) That part made sense in German. His voice is all, hey, Ben, it's Bradley again. I'm home. Hey, have you seen my tiny collection of origami chairs? Any- Never mind, here they are. He hangs up. A lone tear runs down Mary Elizabeth's cheek while an Indian slings garbage at her passing car. She turns on the radio and hears a voice go, the son's character's name is Connor. Urgh! Also, episode seven proves that J.J. Abrams' middle name's the stamp of a truck hits her. She wakes up handcuffed to an IV drip. <laughs> While fat footsteps resound without, she uses the IV's flagpole that Tom thinks boats are steered with as a grappling hook <laughs> to ensnare her cell phone. <laughs> a lot going on in that sentence. 
<laughs> yeah. Tom's makes. No, sense. I like how it had something for everyone, Kelly. One. Yeah. <laughs> Let's diagram it. I found a Tom. She holds it up. She holds the phone up to the camera for better reception and goes, "Come on, come on." The phone screen reception bars are replaced with a sad face icon. Under it, words say, "Sorry, you're in a horror movie." John Goodman opens the door. She's all, Goodman, thank Christ. Bring your socked feet in close up there for a second. I thought you were Julianne Moore. Goodman's all. There was a chemical attack, so you have to live with me for a year. I had to murder your predecessor, Megan, and throw her into a barrel of acid. I mean, she left. Here's an ominous picture of someone the same age as both of you. (laughs) He hands her a photo. A hairy man wearing a ball cap with a pixelated logo on it walks on screen and goes, I was John Goodman's neighbor in the Navy or something. Uh, sorry, I'm usually saying Sorkin dialogue. John Goodman's all, now that Megan's dead and murdered and in my incinerator, I mean the acid. I'm glad you're here, Megan, since we need someone to do the cooking. I tried cooking stuff in my barrel of acid, Megan's body, actually, but it didn't turn out. By the way, my white pickup truck parked right outside with the license plate number 69G. Udman is the one that hits you. I mean, isn't. Also, your leg's broken. Now it's time for you to meet Frank and Mildred. He takes her up to a hatch and shows her a pig pen outside with two exploded pigs in it. He's all, uh, so that's my view. (sighs) Guess you had to be there. Anyway, uh. I have uh, just a good feeling about us. I have tons of jigsaw puzzles with half the pieces missing. You're going to love it here. She's all, that's great, Mr. Goodman, sir, but frankly, I'm a little offended by your sexism and assuming that since I'm a female, I'm interested in cooking. My real passion's fashion magazines. Goodman's all, oh, that's too bad. Emmett here's our seamstress. Emmett pops his head into view and goes, everything I have is thimble-sized. Later, Goodman and Emmett are sitting at the table. Wearing an apron, Mary Elizabeth comes out of the kitchen gingerly carrying a casserole dish using pot holders. She's all, okay, be honest. She sets the dish on the table and takes the lid off. There's a bunch of fried burning dresses and boots sizzling inside. She's all, uh... Like I said, I'm more of a fashion expert. Emmett turns to look at a shelf. Then he looks at Goodman and goes, Hey, you have a copy of Monopoly. Actually, since we're the last people on Earth, you probably got the only copy of it in existence. It's like you got a, uh, what's the word for when you have uh, exclusive possession or control of the supply or trade in a commodity or a service? Mary Elizabeth saw some pretty heroic characters played Monopoly on Fear the Walking Dead one time. Goodman rises, eyes burning with wrath, backs her against a wall and goes, God damn it, I broke your leg and murdered Megan. Show a little gratitude. I mean, threaten your life. She's all, okay, okay, geez. Why does Monopoly always turn so ugly? She picks up a bottle, smashes it against his head, runs up the ladder, locks herself in the garage, then starts to unlock the front door when Princess Leah walks up to the window. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, oh, no. And goes, something touched me. John Goodman comes up behind Mary Elizabeth and goes, that's my neighbor. She's why I locked myself in here. She's really annoying. Although Frank and Mildred are really into her for some reason. Mary Elizabeth looks at the Leah neighbor, then Goodman, then at us, and goes, oh, well, I guess when in Rome. 
While just the two of us plays, we see a montage of her, Goodman, and Emmett giggling as they sledgehammer jigsaw puzzles, dance on giant piano keys side by side, glue John Goodman's butt cheeks together, put on hazmat suits to, to outside and play keep away with Princess Leah with a fishing pole and a dollar bill. Have a threesome, crank call Bradley Cooper, and laughingly reenact Goodman's truck crashing into Mary Elizabeth's car over and over, while aliens watch through binoculars, exchange glances, <laughs> and shake their heads. <laughs> Mary Elizabeth wipes sweat onto her forehead and goes, Can't believe my car accident was only 18 minutes ago. The next day, they run out of oxygen. Goodman opens a vent and goes, Okay, Megan, I mean murdered. I mean Mary Dirt, Elizabeth. <laughs> I mean, look, we need you to crawl through this vent and go to the circuit breaker and then flip a switch. Uh, try not to look around too closely. We'll figure out how to bring you back once you're there. She's all, Okay. Emmett walks on screen. He's all, hey, my character's still in the movie, by the way. (laughs) Mary Elizabeth goes through the vent and squirms sinuously and sweatily through the hard steel shaft. I mean, it's her. She drops into a laundry room, turns on the circuit breaker, and breathes cheerfully. Suddenly, she gasps and looks down in that order. A pair of earrings that say Megan on them lie in the dirt. She picks them up, blows some dust onto them, turns to look off to the side and gasps again. She picks up a purse that has the words Megan's purse stenciled on it and pony-shaped rhinestones. She looks over at a shelf and gasps and picks up a pigtail, looks at another shelf and gasps. It's the other pigtail. She looks up, gasps, then climbs the ladder and sees words smudged in blood on the glass. I, Megan, died here because I was murdered by John Goodman. Also, please note that the sky's blue, which I guess it normally isn't. I could sit through the... God damn it. God damn it! (laughs) It's always the putting game that kills you on these. I mean... I could fit through the vent after all, John Goodman says, standing right behind her, holding an axe. (laughs) She gasps. Later that night, as Mary Elizabeth and Emmett enjoy some quiet time in the wall room. And then nothing happened. Pretty suspenseful, huh, Emmett? Yeah, whatever, Megan. You know what's interesting about me, Emmett? Not really. One time I was in Big Lots and a kid started crying, but at the time I didn't care. I guess that kid's probably dead now. From aliens, not crying. Or a ship supervisor at Big Lots. A ship supervisor. So what's your defining backstory? What makes the third wheel Emmett tick? (laughs) I bet it's pretty twisty since you're the least famous actor here in the defense. (laughs) Psychological. Uh, Well, one time I bought a bus ticket. The next morning, she's all, Emmett, listen, I think you're dumb, but John Goodman's evil, and therefore the greater evil. Uh, which one am I? Never mind. Look, I 
need you to keep John Goodman's back turned while it's already turned so I can steal some scissors for a couple weeks. Thanks to my character's backstory, I know how to sew together a hazmat suit out of a shower curtain and a Monopoly board. Hopefully for the next ten weeks, he doesn't notice the shower curtain's also missing. Also, I only have enough material for one suit, so we'll figure out how to get you out in some other movie. That sounds like a good idea, John Goodman says, standing right behind her. (laughs) (laughs) To celebrate the butcher knife John Goodman's holding, they all play a round of the classic board game, Who Am I Verbally Describing? (laughs) Emmett draws a card. He's all, uh, okay, uh, female comedian, uh, she had a popular sitcom in the 90s, referred to herself as a domestic goddess, uh, she's married to Tom Arnold, uh, she looked like Buddha, kind of, Megan's murdered corpse in the incinerator with acid on it. <laughs> They're all, uh, fine, all right, you get a point. <laughs> your turn, your turn. Goodman draws a card, then stares at both of them creepily and goes, I saw you two idiots steal the scissors. Now I'm about to shoot one of you in the head. <laughs> Mary Elizabeth saw Santa Claus. Goodman draws his gun and points it at Emmett's face. Emmett's all, which one am I? Goodman shoots him. In my theater, Princess Leah comes shambling down the aisle, sits on top of the person sitting beside me, leans over and goes, This movie reminds me of a similar traumatic, creepy host turns Kim to captivity experience that I had at Cloud City, except that my John Goodman was a shifty black man. Big surprise. Lando wasn't in episode seven, since we already had one as a shifty stormtrooper. She gets up and pretends to walk away. She got a little racist there, I thought. She's from a different time, so Jim Crow time. The next day, Goodman comes into Mary Elizabeth's sewing cell and goes, Hey, listen, I know things have been a little tense lately, but I really think we're over the hump here, and that deep down, you and I aren't so different age-wise or weight-wise. In fact, I think it'd be appropriate if you started calling me Megan's murderer. Okay, (laughs) come on, let's hug it out. There we go. Thanks, stupid. Isn't this touchstone, man and a woman? Hey, why you wearing a shower curtain? She smashes him in the face with the wine bottle she's been holding cocked over her shoulder all this time, then runs around knocking shit over and starting fires while John Goodman watches and drinks from the wine bottle. (laughs) He shakes his head and goes, classic Megan. Mary Elizabeth climbs outside, brushes dust onto herself, then turns around and stares at John Goodman's bunker. It blows up. She high-fives herself proudly and goes, yes, nailed it. I outran John Goodman. (laughs) The dying neighbor's body lying nearby, chokes, sits up, hands her a key ring and goes, my car's parked right over there. It has a full tank. (laughs) Really? Well, yeah, she's in the movie. As Mary Elizabeth walks towards the car, a bunch of off-screen birds suddenly start chirping irritably. She's all, hmm, I want to hear the birds singing better. She takes off her hazmat suit and kicks it aside triumphantly. Suddenly, an alien crop duster shows up and starts spraying pesticide at her. She's all, god damn it, and puts the suit back on. (laughs) 
In an effort to avoid attention, she gets into the car, slams the door, starts the engine, revs it, honks the horn, and blasts a couple Bradley Cooper voicemails. The crop duster poops out a dinosaur to annoy her, then a mothership that's been living in John Goodman's nearby mansion. The mothership grows a penis and uses it to reel in the car containing Mary Elizabeth and eat it, since she's shown herself to be immune to its other hyper-advanced technologies. Mary Elizabeth watches in horror through the windshield as, like most people in the audience, the alien's mouth yawns. Suddenly, she watches War of the Worlds, rolls down her window, makes Tom Cruise, and throws him into the mouth. The alien loses interest in being on screen and sends her car tumbling 30 feet below where it explodes, cut to black. Mary Elizabeth wakes up with a PG-13 smudge on her forehead. Luckily, the ground broke the car's fall, so it's also fine. She starts it up and drives past nothing. She comes to the famous Louisiana-Texas intersection. She stares at the sun. (laughs) She turns on the radio. A woman's voice is all, This just in, we're somehow killing all the aliens all of a sudden in a bunch of cities. An organization advises people too injured to move to walk to Baton Rouge. While all people suddenly go to killing aliens, even those who might feel bad about not calling child services because they saw a kid crying one time at Big Lots, should go to Texas and somehow figure out what's going on. Bye. She turns the radio off and closes her eyes to convey she's thinking of a flashback. We see her rifling through Emmett's corpse's wallet and biting all the coins to make sure they're real, and finally discovering and affectionately unwrinkling his trademark bus ticket as a lone tear runs down her cheek. And an Indian enters the wall room to sling garbage on her foot. Back in the present-day car driver's seat, she wipes the garbage off her foot, nods victoriously at us, then turns and drives off in the direction that reads CG 100 miles, and not the arrow that, pointing back the way she came, says the recent past. Cloverfield leans over to me and goes, Looks like I'm still undefeated. The end. (laughs) Thank you. There's that opsis, Tom. I hope it served. Uh, I had no idea watching this whether or not you guys would like it. Um, Normally I'm guessing. I'm like, eh, I think Dingus might like this. Kelly won't. I just have no idea whether this would have worked for you guys. I felt like... I mean, I really love Cloverfield the Monster, and I was just, I was sort of pumped for this movie. I'm willing to give it a go when I suspected the premise, but like, and I think the acting's really good, but I'm kind of, I don't, these movies are all kind of similar, like this and The Divide and um, every Bunker movie. It is a genre, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's always, it always kind of plays out the same way, and it's usually, and I mean, I would, I would count um, Z for Zachariah too a little bit. Because it's sort of a last people on Earth with issues. No, I mean, that's what a bunker movie is. is let's, right. let's erase the, you know, all the social foundations are gone. What happens when you put people in a in close proximity without those sort of social structures? Yeah, and Z for Zachariah is definitely that, yeah. And it was, it was kind of dialogue heavy, and since it's psychological, I might have gotten – I might not be able – be really qualified to judge it since I did see it with German dubs. So I didn't really even hear Goodman's voice. Or know what he was saying, just kind of the gist of it. But my vote would have been to like just make the bunker the first twenty minutes, and then just turned up the volume for the rest of the movie, and just go to Baton Rouge, and just keep going. I don't know. All right, uh, Dingus, did this work for you? Not at all. 
Uh, I, I mean, I, pre- I, I liked, uh, I liked, uh, I like all three actors. I really, really like um, uh, John Gallagher Jr. That was so uh, nice to see him. Yeah, I was super glad to see him. I, I did not know he was going to show up, and when he showed up, even with his weird little accent that he was doing, uh, if that's his real accent, fine. I don't know what it is. <laughs> he had an accent. Yeah, yeah, he was doing a, uh, you know, I mean, I, like a lot of this, I mean, I mean, they're they're down in Louisiana, so that's fine. Um, uh, but I, uh, but I, you know, I love John Goodman in these kinds of parts, uh, and I thought they all worked together great. I mean, it's 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 got this great idea of a um, uh, almost a play mentality. Uh, you know, you could you could do a one act play with these three characters. It's I like his Barton Fink cool. character, kind of. Um, Fink. Yeah, yeah, it, it yeah, very much like his Barton Fink character. I would disagree, a hundred and ten percent. I mean, because the Barton Fink character, you you think there's there's this sort of caring, this creepy, like, caring and regard he has for John Turturro. Like, there, there's, a, well, there's this great that's mix. That's exactly what's going on there's here. This, no, 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 no. He's evil throughout this. There's never no, a no. time where you think he's a good guy. No, I, I think I think he's clearly a, true. He's, oh, okay. You I mean, absolutely I, for, think, I mean, I totally disagree with you. You absolutely are, are curious about whether or not he's caring for her or not. You know? Yeah, see, because I, I thought the... the the tension in the movie is, has the world ended or is he a psycho? And clearly he's a bad guy. I don't think the movie ever wants no, – like, like it's so – Both things are true. The, the world has ended and right. he's, right, he's right. a psycho, and that, that's he's what, that's, also taking care of her. I mean he's not just a, a – he's not a child molester. He's a weird guy who's trying to make a family, and, and he breaks down and, and kills people. And you I think mean, this, the movie is sympathetically portraying this? Because I think this is clearly yeah, – yeah, you're yeah, supposed yeah. to look at this and think he's creepy. Yeah, he's totally creepy, but, oh, okay, but yeah. I, that's what I, I meant by Bar- those But Barton he's Finger. also he's also Barton trying Finger, to construct though, the family. I mean, he's not wrong at the in the end. He's not wrong. So it's okay to like kidnap someone and, and just recruit her <laughs> after you've murdered your previous. No, I'm not <laughs> advocating kidnapping Tom. I'm just saying what? that he's not wrong. <laughs> okay, well, I feel like the movie clearly is very straightforward about yes, he's a psycho. Uh, no, I so disagree. That, yeah. All right. Okay. But anyway, I disagree that he's like because I think a lot of John Goodman's characters uh, in some of his most memorable roles combine this idea of he's crazy and he's loving. This movie didn't take at all advantage of this this loving side of him that you see in Barton Fink in Big Lebowski. Um, but that's a legal move if you want to. Right, but you, Kelly Wan, said he's like this character from uh, Barton Fink, and I just wanted I just to speak that because I think that Barton Fink <laughs> takes great advantage of, of John Goodman's strengths. I love seeing him in this, but you could have cast anybody in this to just be the psycho, crazy guy who kidnaps women and keeps them in a bunker. Oh my um, gosh, I totally disagree with you. I mean, that's totally opposite of what I. I mean, I, my, I mean, gosh, I can't. As much as I don't like this movie, um, he's the saving grace because. It, oh, I agree. It's I sort agree. Of, it's sort of a, it's it's sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, crushing at the end when you realize, well, geez, he did he did murder Megan. I mean, that's sad, but he, yeah, I don't, I he don't can have ever. murdered Megan after trying to make her a part of his family because he's a guy with huge temper problems. Who knows what happens to his wife? Yeah, Who knows what happened to other people in his life? But he's not like a pedophile or something. He's he's somebody who's trying to make a family and he can't 
make it happen because he keeps crushing people. I mean, he and shoots, so was... <laughs> he shoots yeah, I don't... Emmett in the head because that's what he thinks is justice at that moment. But he's wrong, um, Dingus. He's wrong. Yeah. He's doing. I don't understand where he's you're coming nuts. from. He's nuts. He's... And the movie is very clear about it, it never. Early on, there's this great, like, what the, the like, WTFness about the movie that I really enjoyed. But yeah, that goes he's... away all too quickly as we realize this guy's a murderer. He doesn't know how to treat women. Uh, he, he's crazy. He might be lying about the end of the world. I mean, that's what I say about the tension is, is he a psycho or did the world really end? Is he lying or did it end? But I don't think the movie – like this whole idea that, he, that that it's like a, a surprise that he murdered Megan. Right. The surprise is that she gets evidence, is that yeah. she, the doubt is removed. But I don't think there's any of – and I, I agree with you, Dingus, in that – I also didn't like this, by the way. Uh, a lot of the saving grace in this for me was just being fascinated watching John Goodman work. But yeah, yeah. My, my problem is w- with Barton Fink, with Big Lebowski, with the best John Goodman roles, there, there's much more th- – there are more layers, and, and there's what no about? layer to this guy. This guy I just thought – and the movie condemns this guy. I don't think the movie ever expects us to sympathize with him, at least any more yeah. than you would sympathize with, a, with any villain who's given some sort of motivation. Uh, I mean, so there, there was none of like that – that big brotherliness of, of Walter and Big Lebowski, and none of the way that he would take John uh, Torturo under his arm in um, in Barton Fink. He was just this creepy, weird guy who didn't know how to interact with women throughout. I, well, I thought, I, I, and I, I wanted more with that. that that moment where he tells her to go to the bathroom. I'm not. I'm not a creep. I'm not going to watch you. Just do it. Go to the bathroom. Don't flush unless you actually went because we can't afford the the wasted water. What he cooks for them. I mean, there's there's all this other stuff feathered in where he is totally a creep and totally weird. I mean, that that certainly is there. But I don't. I disagree with you that there's not layers there. Do, do you think there are layers when Jamie Gum gives uh, that Brooke woman lotion? Like, no, the same thing. To no, me. That's, those are totally different things. You can you can talk about Jamie Gum all you want, but these are two two totally different characters. And and John Goodman is trying to create a family here, and and um, <laughs> Emmett, that's what he's doing. That, that's what that Polaroid is about. He's, and who do you think took a- the Polaroid picture? He's trying to create a family, even if even if. Um, Emmett has stormed into it, and this was not the way it was supposed to be. He's trying to maintain that. He's trying to maintain some sort of family thing as far as even even in his twisted mind, um, as far as he can do it. He might be sick. He might be – but I don't think he's utterly evil like James Gum. Well, I mean, James Gum, Dingus, no, is misunderstood. James Gum, Gum is just a confused transsexual. Yeah, he's less evil than Goodman. Yeah. Goodman's a lying piece By that of rationale. shit. I mean, we're, we're giving you grief. There's no analogy right? there. Come on. No, they're absolutely. We're, we're giving you grief. But my over under for this is, is is due to keep women in their basement, and I don't right. think. Uh, oh, good. Really? Okay. Dingus, he kidnapped well, her. You're under for dudes who keep women in their basement. He hit her car and and made her go out like. Yeah, he I don't look, look. I'm so, not defending the guy. I'm just saying that he said he isn't wrong. He's defending him to say he's not wrong. That's defending. He's saying he's defending him because he wants to make a family. He's right about the end of the world. That's what I mean. He's not wrong. When she gets goes out of the place and she goes, oh fuck. She okay, re- I got the impression oh, you were saying right. he's not wrong for wanting to create a family because that's no, the way no, no, he's no. going about it and what he's doing is wrong. And I think the movie makes it clear. This is a bad guy. This is someone. Well, well, of course he's a bad guy, but he's not wrong about the end of the world. That's what I mean when he said. That's all he's. But she leaves and and she goes. Oh my God, he's right. He's right about all of the things he said. He's not wrong. That's what I meant by he's not wrong. 
when she gets out, she realizes, oh shit, Howard was right. Oh, okay, because I got so, the, he was, Yeah, it sounded to me like you were trying to say this whole idea of creating a new family and how he treated her by not watching oh. her go to the bathroom. I mean, it sounds like sort of defending like him as as like someone we're supposed though. to sympathize with. Oh no, 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 no. What I when, when I said he's not wrong, it means I mean that in, as the movie ultimately progresses, she realizes, oh my god, Howard was right. Fuck. It's the Tim Robbins part of War of the Worlds. Expand. Yeah, it's just the middle act of, of War of the Worlds. Yeah, that, that's what I mean by he's not wrong. He's not wrong because he said aliens, you know, once they come here from well, – if the Martians figure out how to come here, they're going to make the Russians look like you know, sticks and stones. I mean he's right about that. He's right about the end of the world. That's what I mean he's not wrong. He's, 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 he's right in, in the overarching idea of the movie. He's right that the end of the world has come. Okay, but but my problem with it being that it doesn't really take advantage of what John Goodman has to offer uniquely. See, okay. John Goodman's fascinating to watch, but any good actor could have done this. John Goodman, uh, okay. no good actor could have done – like John Goodman so completely owns the characters of Walter Sobchak, and I forget his name in part and thing, but he so completely owns those characters, and he really brings a unique quality to them. This script doesn't really uh, – like I said, this is just a, a generic crazy guy keeping right. a woman in his in his basement who happens to be played by a good actor uh right. I, I loved watching but so my over and under and i couldn't I, i'm not going to bracket it because i didn't like this and sometimes i feel like when we, we don't like a movie it's kind of pointless to try to tight it's pointless to tightly try to bracket it like right. what do i care about a movie i like and slightly better than so what i'm going to do is i'm going to go my favorite movie about a dude who keeps a woman in his basement and my least favorite movie uh because I think that's ultimately what this is, and if it had had more focus on that, I think it could have worked, but it, it's, it, it subscribes way too much to the lost school of storytelling, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but so my under is this horrible, 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 just difficult-to-watch, ugly, trashy movie from the director of Ella Enchanted called An American Crime – in which Catherine Keener plays a woman, and it's based on a historical, uh, something that actually happened in the 60s, plays a woman who's a foster parent to uh, a girl, and she ends up despising the girl, locking her in the basement, torturing and eventually murdering her. And it's just, it's wretched. Uh, Kelly Wan, Jack Ketchum, who we know, he wrote a story based on this. It was also made into a movie, also bad. Um, but this hues way, this is trying girl to next be... Door? Yeah, exactly, Girl Next Door. Uh, but an American crime is basically just 90 minutes of watching Catherine Keener abuse uh, Ellen Page plays the young girl uh, and just just horrible I mean it's really I just needed to take a shower after watching it uh, it's a reverse hard candy uh, yes yes exactly well hard candy is a reverse yeah it, exactly yeah. Um, but here's a really good there are this this genre of Prison, in Prisoning Women in the Basement, there's a, a, an, an actor, a, a director, who I really, really like for his unique perspective on women in horror movies named Lucky McKee. And he did a movie called The Woman uh, in which uh, uh, yeah. a, a, an actor named Sean Bridgers, who, Dingus, we saw. Did you recognize Sean Bridgers from uh, Midnight Special? No. So he's just one of the cult members that they interview, and he has a great scene uh, where he talks about what he's seen, what he's been shown, and he's just in that one little shot. But I love that actor. He plays this guy who finds a feral woman out in the wilderness, and he brings her home to to presumably tame her by locking her up in the basement. Uh, 
and ultimately the movie is about the power. It's basically a, a metaphor for uh, women being subjected to abuse and what the responsibilities are and how you know what what sort of sentiment it creates in other men, the dynamics it has on a family. Uh, just a great subversive movie in that genre of you know women locked in the basement. Right. So it's not just a subject to do abuse, but it's women being tamed, basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's not. It's not a like I, American crime. I would, and I'm shy about using this term. I think it's misused way too often. But American crime is torture porn, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Whereas the woman is this great subversive take on horror movies, uh, and I think arguably the best thing Lucky McKee has done. Um, yeah, so, I, I fucking, I, I mean, I freaking love uh, the woman. Yeah. Absolutely love that. And and I was nervous when we got get into the basement here and she's chained to the wall because I had asked, you know, asked my girlfriend to go see this movie too at the same time that I was seeing it. Um, and I, I was worried that oh god, if I've relegated her to watching another woman being in the basement and victimized for an entire movie kind of movie. I didn't know that's what we were going into. I thought we were going into a Cloverfield sequel. Which uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But but as far as being a, a movie about women in a basement, I mean, you could do far worse than this. You could, you could also do far better. Uh, well, at least she's competent, and, and exactly. I don't know why she's so competent. But uh, but at least she's yeah. competent. She's really she's a she's a fighter, and she gets actually to have some some moments where she she um, she shows that competence. But I, and I don't know why that is. But, I know. Okay, Daisy Ridley. I would, no, I would argue that she's competent as she is because, and I love this. I think that's kind of the climate of storytelling these days in in Hollywood in movies. Ah, okay. I mean, and I, I love that. I applaud that. I think we've come a long way since the 80s and 90s, all this damsel in distress stuff. And you still see some of that. But I think popular mainstream movies, they show women as competent and tough for the most part. I mean, there are certainly exceptions. Uh, but I, I think young contemporary storytellers, guys like J.J. Abrams' age, they know better than to just refrigerate women. So I, uh, I enjoyed that. That's a good that. point, yeah. Yeah, and I enjoyed that part. It's more of the, dramatic. I mean, movie. certainly Star Wars does that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, th- as far as a woman in a basement it's movie, still could be more textured. I didn't think. Yeah, I didn't think it was terrible, but I didn't, really didn't think it was any good. And by the time, and, and ultimately, uh, well, let, let's talk about the, the marketing then. Do you guys want to move on to that? Let, like, yeah, why, is, why is this wherever. called? Why is this called Tin Cloverfield Lane? Yeah, lame. Because it's the same production company, right? And they went. It's, it's not only that; it's that while it was being made, they they just decided that there was some connective tissue between the two. Uh, that sounds to me. I mean, Dingus, I don't I'm, I don't doubt in the least they say that. That's but what I, they said. I personally don't believe it. Uh, no, no, actually. So explain to me though. Do, did you see the connective tissue? Like, could you guys tell me what the connective tissue is? Is the is the stuff about the blackouts? Is that science fiction? It, well. No. But, but I do kind of like this idea. I mean, and I've read some of the interviews that have gone on. I mean, I like I, I like the concept of this, uh, even though it feels like the movie feels like either something that would be on TV or fan fiction. Yeah. Um, it, it I, I like the concept of of creating a this like franchise around this movie that that you made, um, as if. Uh, other people were filming things at the same time, um, and, and this is one of the things that I read about, it, and I really like this idea. Like, uh, you know, as if you know, while 
uh, HUD is filming what's, whatever's going on on the bridge. Um, he sees somebody else filming something at the same time, and that's like a almost a half. Right. Um, of course, this movie is not uh, found footage in any way, but I like that idea. I like that idea that at the same time, because in that opening apartment sequence, which I kind of really liked, all the little objects, the things she's looking at, the thimble, when she decides to pick up the phone, um, the the things that the that that this could you know when there's the when there's the motion tremors in 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 the apartment where she is at the beginning that all of this could be going on at the same time or in the same universe that Cloverfield is going on, but it's just a different story that's going on. We, we followed that other story, but Hey, here's this story that was going on at the same time. I really like the idea. I like the conceptual idea of, of another story going on, but we just didn't know about it over there in Cloverfield. This is going on over here at 10 Cloverfield Lane. So I like that idea. That's not true though. So it is, but it's not going same universe but wait i mean is there any support in cloverfield for the idea that they're aliens no. invading like is that part of cloverfield no. dingus because no, 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 dingus no. has seen it most recently he would know well, it's an well, anthology well no 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 there there's nothing i mean uh, anything rats. about where where the monster comes from is purely conjecture as far as you know you know, like people talking about something fell out of the sky and it was right. deep in the sea right. and he accidentally dug it up uh, Anything about where that monster came from is purely fan conjecture or what other people have talked about. Where that monster came from, we don't know. Uh, well, they release viral marketing stuff. Yeah, a lot of it's marketing. I mean, Dingus is right, yeah. though. I mean, it's, as far as an in, as far as an in movie rationale, right? That's how I remember. But that's what makes it. that good. Is like you can without the viral stuff, it works anyway. But that's but, why. I'm but wondering. it could work for this right, as, right, right. as this idea of well, maybe it is an alien invasion, or maybe it's an invasion after the fact, or maybe they oh there there's our there's our Cloverfield, let's go get them, you know. And let's take over the the eastern seaboard or whatever. Um, I mean, there's a lot. There's, I mean, well, they disavowed so there. It's, it's brutal. Gra- I mean, what'd you say? They disavowed that. They were asked that. So is this in the same universe? I'm like, no. Oh, right. Well, so they already shot it down. Well, my my problem with that is I don't. As far as the storytelling and you know, Cloverfield is a, is a found footage movie and it's it's a great variation on it because it's also a a giant monster movie and. What some purists might, I think, call a kaiju movie. I don't know. Uh, this right. is nothing like that. This is, a, yeah. again, this is a woman in a basement movie that does this stupid lost twist and becomes an alien invasion movie. <laughs> and, and my theory, uh, Kelly Wan, you say, you know, they, uh, well, they might have reasons to say why they named it that. But my theory is that this is a really cynical marketing ploy because, uh, well, hey, first of all, there's all this stuff going on with shared universes, with, with Marvel, certainly. It's uh-huh. been hugely commercially successful. So I don't doubt that J.J. Abrams' production company is chasing some of that. But more to the point, I don't think anyone would go to this movie. This movie would not have sold if they didn't market it as you know, something mysterious. Don't, don't tell your friends what the, what the twist is. This is like and, – and, and hook it very intentionally to Cloverfield, even though, as far as I can tell, there's no continuity. Uh, right. I think no, they were just. Not, I, I no, think they we, were just cynically doing this to sell it, and there's nothing in the movie to support that. Go ahead, Kelly. But Sorry. they they could have they could have done what Dingus said. Like Dingus was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, and they could have just said, "It's up to you. We're not going to say." And like well, they could have even just like half-assed it. But they or they could have simply linked it to Cloverfield. There it is a tangential really connection that you can actually make, uh, but I don't know. 
it, well, it seems a little convenient for them to have not thought of it. But, you know, in Cloverfield, and I think this is clear, there is something about the satellite crashing in the sea. It's the very last thing that you see. You're right. And John Goodman works for a satellite company. So he could theoretically be – like that could be how he knew about this stuff, is that somehow mm-hmm. the satellite crashing – that's his connection to the events in Cloverfield. It seems tenuous to me, but I did think it was convenient that they had him work for a satellite company. But he just happens to be nuts. He's not crazy from... No, I didn't not even drive. notice that, Tom. I thought he talked about being in the Navy or something. I didn't notice. Well, but working on satellites. So, sorry, no, you're right, Dingus. It wasn't a satellite company. He, he worked on satellites, but you're right that he he was either doing it for the Navy or he had been in the Navy. You're right. I definitely remember that. Right. But, but it overall... Is, it, it is funny to me, though, how... These these survivalist guys are complete wackos until the world actually ends, at which point, right. hey, it's kind of convenient to have him around now. Thanks, guy. Uh, <laughs> it, it reminds me there's a, a book that a friend of mine gave me that's terrible, by the way. Uh, uh, a freelance writer, a guy who normally writes for Outside Magazine, I think, named Peter Heller. He took his knowledge of – he's also an amateur pilot – uh, obviously, a lot of camping and fishing. He took his knowledge of this stuff, and he set it in an end-of-the-world scenario uh, that early on – and Dickens, I don't know if you ever read this. You would love the first part of it. Uh, there's a lot of procedural stuff about how you survive after a pandemic has wiped out the population, and there's great stuff about his relationship to his dog because you know he, he loves his dog, and his dog is super helpful to him. Uh, he's creating a settlement. Uh, one of the few other living people near him is a survivalist wacko, uh, a guy named Bruce, who he is completely at odds with in terms of personality. But it's funny how this Bruce guy knows things that he doesn't know. You know, Bruce, as a survivalist wacko, is suddenly indispensable <laughs> as a neighbor. Um, so the first half of Dog Stars has this great take on, yeah, these wackos are going to be hugely helpful. Uh, but unfortunately, halfway through the book, it becomes this really stupid fantasy about being the last man on earth with a hot chick uh and, and completely falls apart um mm. everything goes that way including cloverfield it falls apart you mean or fantasies about being with the hot, hot chick? chick yeah the hot chick one 10 cloverfield lane didn't oh that's a good point i don't think um well well uh, so I, so okay so kelly one you and i have seen lost dingus you have mercifully been you have spent the, I don't know, 60-odd hours we've spent watching Lost doing more fruitful things. Uh, <laughs> Kelly Wan, so yeah, I completely thought of the intro of Desmond's intro where they show him in the bunker and you realize what's underneath this mysterious hatch. And there's a lot of fantasies. There's a lot of stuff in Lost about this bunker and, and you know living un- underneath the world after some cataclysm has happened. Um, do you see any other points of continuity with Lost? I mean, obviously, Drew Goddard, uh, Brian – I'm going to confuse him with the Bloom County guy. Brian Burke? No, yeah. I thought about the Bloom County guy, too. I don't know why that is. Yeah, Joe or something. Yeah. Burke breathed is the Bloom County. I think Brian Burke is one of the producers on Lost along with Drew Goddard. There's one more I'm forgetting. Uh, but anyway, some Lost guys well, – well, J.J. Abrams, of course. Some Lost guys were behind this. Uh, Kelly, why did you see any lost continuity? Uh, is the guy crazy or not? Benjamin Linus. Uh, sure, sure. Very good, actually. Yeah, that's a great example. And that actor, great. by the way, is great. Yeah, yeah. get a great actor to play someone like that. Yes. And then, yes. And then just, you know, lean on it. 
Temple. To be fair, though, they had way more time with Ben to draw out this, is he or isn't he crazy? Is he a good guy or isn't he a good guy? They, they, they gave that actor a lot of time and room and material to play with. Yeah. Uh, uh, disappointing payoff. That's exactly what I'm thinking that's of. That's lost yeah. in a nutshell. Well, just a completely... Like a cool setup, too. Yeah, what do you yeah. mean by disappointing payoff? Just um, everything's sort of telegraphed, and either something doesn't make sense, or it's like the obvious thing. Like the like what I agree with Tom. It's like I never thought John Goodman was not crazy because the whole thing is the horror movie, right? True. Okay. Like he just acts guilty as shit for the whole movie. And then, <laughs> I well, I would I would say the disappointing it's not scary though. The disappointing payoff yeah. is, is that bit that she comes out and it becomes a brief like alien fight. Um, yeah, and it's not a good alien fight. I didn't like it. I didn't like the action. Well, it, it's also – it says to me that the people telling this story, you know, writing this progression from the bunker movie to the alien fight, they don't know what they're doing. No. They're just They're just doing stuff for the sake of doing it. All they care about is this moment-to-moment thrill ride with no regard, absolutely zero regard – for, for making sense, much less making any kind of point. Uh, it's all derivative, too. It's like derivative, that. and it's pointless, and it's just throw stuff at the screen and try to make it look amazing. Uh, I knew a guy who actually worked on Lost, mm-hmm. and he would he was, uh, he was uh, one of the electricians. And he would go out there to Hawaii, and he would work for weeks filming it, and then he would come back to L.A., and it was a great gig. And I got to see – I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I got to see – uh, parts of the script for Lost, um, and the, the script for Lost, you can see in the actual script, is so completely juvenile, and it's so breathlessly <laughs> taken with its own amazement and, and as, as its own cleverness. And what I specifically remember, there's an episode where they're all gathered on the beach, and I don't know, there's some crisis going on, and they've been stranded. You know, this plane wrecks on this mysterious island. They're stranded. They're on the beach, and a sailboat sails up. And then I think it's the end of the episode, and then next episode you find out who's in the sailboat and what the deal is with it. So in the script <laughs> That's the cliffhanger. But in I the lost. script where, where you know the parts between the dialogue where they're explaining what's happening, it's written like this. Like it would have so and so says this and then this and then this and then there's a chunk of instructions for uh, I forget what you call it. Like, like the narration that would happen. And the narration reads like and this is literally how the words read. I mean this isn't I'm having to paraphrase a little bit, but this is exactly how it's written. It says stuff like, holy shit, it's a boat. They can't believe it. They can't believe a boat, a fucking boat. They've what? been on the island so long without any hope, and now they see a boat sailing towards them. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, holy shit, now a fucking boat is coming up to them. Like, that's what the directions would say. That sounds like an Adam Sandberg uh, video. It, it's it's that ridiculous, Dingus. I mean, it read. Wait, that, is it, there like that much swearing? Yeah, 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 no, totally, like totally. Boat. They're totally like, holy shit! Like that's in the directions there. Yeah. Holy shit! So the uh, that's so weird. But you know what? It doesn't surprise me. Like now, loss makes more sense now that you told me that. Yeah, and, and they you know that's they they do their so press and they say yes, it's it's going to make sense. This is all going to come together. We have a yeah, point. Yeah, they, they don't. Yeah, time all, for questions is over. Remember. And that just meant stop asking questions. Right, because all they care about is is this this okay. cheap providing a cheap rush to get you to come back and watch it next week. And but I, yeah. 
I would be fine with that if they were giving us something for it, you know, like if they're giving us cool twists and shit. Well, that's the thing is, it's not. There's no meaningful content in it. It's just like empty flavor. It's, it's just like these dead end calories, basically. Like you're eating potato chips, and you realize at some point, you know, I'm going to be hungry in an hour. Why am I just eating potato? But they chips? think it's great. <laughs> they think it's fucking a London broil. Well, because you know why, Kelly Wands? Because it does so well. Because it's so effective. People watch it. It makes tons of money, and it makes people stars. Well, it didn't make. It made half as much as the first one. So. Oh, Cloverfield. Well, I'm talking about Lost. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, a reason. Are, uh, yeah. Lost. But Lost. A, you guys kind of make me wish that John Goodman's character, that Howard, had escaped with her, and that they would, at the end, they'd be driving down the road together, and she'd be saying, "So, did you murder Megan?" He'd be like, sort of sadly <laughs> saying, "Yeah, I did." But he's all she's got, and they drive off together. See, Dingus, you're, you're joking, but I would That's love, better. I would love that movie where this guy has yeah. done terrible things. The end of the it's world comes about. Well, no, the end of the world comes about, and what does that do to a psycho who can't interact with people? You know, he can't just kidnap and murder her and then get another one later. You right. know, maybe he's got to change, and maybe he's got to come to some sort of terms with admitting what he's done, and right. and that's the drama down in the bunker. Or she that, exploits his kidnapping skills to survive. That could be cool. I mean, there, there are opportunities right. here that they completely squandered because they just wanted to throw acid at him and then have a fight against an alien spaceship. PG-13 acid burns, too. Yeah. Kelly Wan, you say this is derivative. Uh, what tropes did you guys recognize in this movie? So cl- clearly there's the, the people in the bunker thing. Uh, do you recognize anything else? Um, by the way, I, I just want to tell you that uh, people in my theater clapped when the alien spaceship, whatever organism, <laughs> showed up. Really? When it actually, actually when she, when she, when she looks up and goes, "Oh fuck," or whatever she says. Um, I, I think she says, "Oh come on." No, no, she, that's her f bomb, isn't it, Dingus? I think she she says, "Oh fuck," eventually, but uh, I think first she says, "Oh right." Oh, come on right, uh, and you see that alien, whatever it is, the the, th- the thing that first drops the the. Uh, you know, the it has the tentacle that drops one of the aliens. Um, somebody in my theater, a couple of people in my theater started clapping. And uh-huh. that, you know, that that's because that lost approach of, hey, just throw cheap thrills at the audience and some of them will like it. I mean, yeah. There's- at the end of my movie, a ger- I heard one German girl, like a few rows down, just laugh sadly. Like, uh, <laughs> oh, I thought that'd be good. But as, as far as tropes, it, it, it has this weird, like, uh, I'm going to hide things under my mattress prison thing going on. Yeah, yeah, Ding, it's very yeah, good. It's like a prison. Yeah. yeah. And super yeah. convenient, that whole thing about, you know, I think it's the most convenient reveal of an occupation since Richard Dreyfus as an architect, <laughs> reveals in Poseidon that because he's an architect, he knows the ship is going to sink. Therefore, they have to climb up to the bottom of it. <laughs> but I did, you know what? Too. What I did like about Kelly Wan, there's no reason to bring that up. Yeah, seriously, what? that's another trope. What I did like about He's it blood. is, uh, Dingus, you wouldn't know this, but in all of these post-apocalypse games, there's crafting, where you have to like get, <laughs> you have to get the Pepsi bottle, and you have to get the shower curtain, mm-hmm. and then you have to level up your skill and make a hazmat suit and a gas mask out of it. Uh, I kind of liked that. Yeah. Um, what about in movies where they only know one person or there's only one relative or boyfriend, like her parent? Like, I guess I kind of get why it would be boring for her to be obsessing about all of them, but it's always like, I wonder what Ben's doing. Right, you do kind so of, in order in order to get to the drama of their relationship with each other, you generally have to forget about other people that aren't. Right, in- she only knows one person. Which is That's- one of the 
things I love about Z for Zachariah, by the way, uh, is yeah. that uh, the, their families, I mean, not necessarily the, the third character, who I hate to mention this is a spoiler that he's even in it, but uh, their families and how closed-mouthed Chuidal Ejiofor is about his relationship to the woman whose picture he sees. He doesn't want to talk right. about her. He doesn't want to be connected. And she is keenly aware of her brother, of her father. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's her home, too. I'm exactly. constantly worried about the brother. And, and and the church. I mean, the fact that she's attached to the little church building. Like, it's, it's a movie where it's about the interactions of the characters, but it doesn't have to leave behind who they were before. There's where it's happening. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, but em- Emmett only has a 40-mile radius, so he doesn't need any families, apparently. I really did like that guy. I was so glad he was in there. Uh, yeah, I love John Gallagher. Uh, I, I have a trope that I would call uh, underwear peril, and it's where you put women in danger and they're wearing their underwear. And I don't necessarily – by the way, I'm not necessarily opposed to it because Mary Elizabeth uh, Winstead, she's a beautiful girl and she's in great shape. And I don't mind a little cheesecake there. That's, that's by the way, a staple of damsels in distress is they tend to be hot. But like Ripley in, in Alien, as far back as that, as recent as Saffron Burrows in Deep Blue Sea, she has to strip down her underwear to, to fight sharks. Um, so I felt like there was some underwear peril going on. But that's what Quint was going to do if he'd lived long enough. <sighs> but I, I thought that was kind of upset by the fact that she has to go to the bathroom in front of them. I mean, I think that, you know, even though that that's the same place where she takes a shower and then it's it's just a quick cut to her with her hair wet. Um, but the earlier scene where she's like, I can't do this if you're watching me. And, and I, I kind of like the way that scene played out. And I'm not complaining about it, by the way. I, I don't mind. Like, tropes aren't necessarily – that doesn't necessarily mean they, they don't uh, wear it. They're tropes for a reason. Right. I killed Jabba. I needed to wear steel shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, here's a trope that I quite like, uh, especially because I recently saw it undone. Um, crawling through ducts. Yeah. <laughs> and the knife, the, the guy who's trying to like shoot or stab, like misses exactly. somehow, even though they can see through the crack. Right, right, exactly. Or just make sure to stick the knife up in regular intervals, and sooner or later you're going to hit yeah. something the size of Mary Elizabeth Winston. And it's two inches from the face every right, time. Right, right. And then followed by the, oh! And then no, and then no change in strategy based on that. Like, yeah. all right, I'll just keep going. <laughs> right. All but right, I did it twice. There's yeah. no sense in the construction that he can he can reach the duct in that way. There's no sense in the sense oh, in right, the right. construction right. that he can actually stab through the side of the duct. Yeah, he with, can reach the duct with his hand if he can get the knife. Yeah, in the, there's yeah. no sense in that in the construction at all. I mean, Bad filmmaking. Terrible. But I Bad do love that you brought it up. Tom, in that duct thing, because it reminds me of Die Hard. Oh, Die Hard. Yeah, I was thinking Aliens, but yeah, absolutely Die Hard, yeah. She's uh, in Die Hard 4. Uh, so there's a there's a, <laughs> a a horror movie that I don't recommend, uh, because it's one of those anthologies where most of the movie is terrible. You have to pick through a lot of trash to enjoy the, the good anthologies, especially in ABCs of Death, where there are 26 shorts, each a letter of the alphabet, each a different director, most of them are horrible. Uh, furthermore, there's an ABCs of Death 2. And the first one is called... Letters and numbers. <laughs> the first one is called... So, the, yeah, so all told, there's 46 of these. No, 50, 52. Wait. Second alphabet. 46. 52. It's double A, double Tom's alphabet. <laughs> right. Uh, so in ABCs of Death 2, fortunately, the very first one, the letter A, it's called A is for Amateur. Uh, and it's a director named E.L. Katz who did... A really, really good uh, – I would call it a horror movie that is not for Dingus but is definitely for Kelly Wand. Uh-huh. 
called Cheap Thrills. Kelly One, have you seen Cheap Thrills? No, I don't see you've, movies. You've talked about this before, yeah. yeah. I quite like it. Kelly One, you should see Cheap Thrills, and, and the less you know about it, the better. But anyway, so this guy, E.L. Katz, who did Cheap Thrills, he did A is for Amateur, and it starts with this super sexy, glamorous like MTV music video portrayal of this really slick assassin dude. Uh, and he's killing people, and he's going to like discos and driving fancy cars, and he's super cool, and he gets a job to kill someone, and he's going to crawl through the ducts to go in and kill him. But the duct, like a real duct, is full of like dust and spider webs, and it's really tight, and it gets smaller the more he crawls down it, and he gets stuck and eventually starves to death and dies in the duct. <laughs> Oh, and and that's the whole. You know, they're they're very short. That's all of uh, A is for Amazon. See, that never happens in these damsel and. Well, they're also so clean. They always get out. Ducks aren't clean. Like, wouldn't there be dust and stuff in there? Yeah, like when you have this super slick, polished metal duct. That's yeah. Well, they are in Brazil. They're kind of dirty. What are your overs and unders, you guys? So, miners, uh, women in basement movies, usually crappy. There's one good one. What do you guys have for your overs and unders? Dingus, you mentioned we, we'd hit one of yours before, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we hit mine right out of the gate uh, with the divide. And it's right. kind of uh, people being um, in the situation where they where they know something might have happened, but they don't know if it's actually the end of the world or not, or but they just assume it is. Um, and uh, so the under would be the divide. Uh, we already did this on the podcast, on the podcast, so I don't have to talk about that very much. And I couldn't really watch it this week, but it's hilarious to watch um, the trailer for that movie. For the divide, it, why is it hilarious? It's hilarious because there's so many people doing that, like that full open mouth ah, thing where where your teeth are just like totally open and you're screaming, and it it just seems like every other shot is um, is divide? somebody just. Yeah, in the divide. It's the divide just, does get pretty histrionic, I think. So they're yeah. dividing their jaws. Yeah, it really is very much that. Um, and the over would be this this movie that uh, I saw last year called Forever's End, um, about uh, this woman who, who uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a post-apocalyptic movie. She thinks it's the end of the world, and she's um, run off to uh, be totally in isolation um, because she believes it's the end of the world, and she's she's acting as if it's the end of the world in much the same way that Howard is acting as if it's the end of the world. Who's the what? Is anyone famous in it? Um, no, there's nobody. Well, uh, there's nobody famous in it. Um, it's directed by a guy named J.C. Schroeder, um, and uh, I mean it's it very much feels like. Um, a, I wouldn't say it's not. I mean, it feels like a very independent film. Okay, you're not recommending it though. Like when you say it's your it's your over, that's that's with you bracketing it. Yeah, I, I'm, right. yeah, I'm very much bracketing this. Right. I'm I'm not I'm not doing the thing that you guys are doing, but but yeah, um, I so like sli- Forever's End. Um, but I saw it when we saw Z for Zachariah uh, because. Um, uh, it had some of the same thematic ideas to it, and it has kind of a, a, same, a similar feel in the beginning. It's not the movie that Z for Zechariah is by any means, uh, but I would put it over uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm-hmm. Kelly Wan, did you, I'm sure, because you're usually very, very careful about bracketing very closely. 
What's yeah. something that's ever so slightly better than Tim Cloverfield Lane, and what's something that's just a smidge worse? Well, Tom, as you may know about me, I do what you just said. So my theme was um, women chained to radiator movies. What? So my uh, is she chained to a radiator? Is that what? Or an IV tube, whatever. She's, yeah, she's chained to something. Okay. Yeah. So my under was Fifty Shades of Grey, and <laughs> my over was Black Snake Moan. Oh my God, Kelly Wand. What? Black Snake Moan is good, by the way. Tom, I'm the Black Philip of this podcast. Wait. Oh Jesus. Well, Kelly Wand, I don't know. I'm quite sure I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, uh, Dingus, uh, you you mentioned Dan Trachtenberg had a movie podcast. Yeah, 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 he had a he had a podcast I really loved for a long time, uh, or one of the podcasts I I was in, in my regular rotation. It was called the Totally Rad Show. Um, he was on it with uh, with uh, uh, this, these guys named uh, Jeff Kanata and Alex. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, uh, but yeah, it was a it was a podcast I really liked, and he was he was on that for years and years and years. Um, I don't know, maybe five years. So I listened to their last show or watched their last show because it was also a video podcast. Um, but he was, he also sort of developed into this commercial director. And I think you really can see that here, especially with the fact of the, the way the music sort of pounds through in this movie. Um, but yeah, he was in, he was on a podcast I really, really liked for a long time. So I was, when, when I went to see this movie, I was kind of like really hoping because I didn't realize that he was the one who directed it. I was really hoping it would be good. I liked some of the craft in the early parts. Like I really liked the the way the silent title cards cut into the mayhem of the wreck. Uh, I liked the muffled sound after the gunshot, for instance. Like I, I liked some of that, uh, just straight up craft. Uh, Getting back to the oh, that's a really good point because you know actually, and I I have totally forgotten to bring in what our listeners were talking about during this. Good, but this is something that Chris Markins has said. I mean, you you just triggered that in my head. Um, Chris really liked the the car accident leading into the opening credits. I mean, he thought that was what you said about Kraft. I mean, I remember him saying that he really loved that. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, and I like the premise too. It reminded me. You know, the opening with a woman just driving away from something, trying to escape something, and you're wondering, what's she going to get into? It's kind of like the opening of Psycho. Oh. Like, like you know there's something that's going to happen she's driving towards, and she's in, unsuspecting. There's kind of this tension there. Uh, and I also like it occurred to me, uh, a great cinematic trick is to show somebody at a gas station because that establishes kind of subconsciously – how far and how long she's driven. Like, we know she's been yeah. driving long enough that she's emptied the gas tank of her car. And there's that's a, an intuitive thing that you realize seeing somebody pulling up to a gas station. After or that car. they didn't mean to leave and that they're... That they forgot to fill up their tank yeah, before they, they left. Yeah. <laughs> well, her thing about... I mean, that's one of the weird things about her character is that um, she decides just to run away. And, and she talks about that later in her in her terrible child abuse thing. And this is another thing that Chris said about you know, he, he what Chris says is he's really tired of of women of movies where where women protagonists, you know, are have to have suffered some sort of child abuse in order to be part of the. Ah, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but but she talks about that later when she's talking in, in the. I think Kelly Wand called it the uh, the wall scene or <laughs> the wall room. Yeah, the wall room. Um, 
Um, but, but she talks about, you know, you know, this weird child abuse story, you know, and I always run away from things. You know, I saw this father pulling his daughter's arm super hard and, and just like I always do, I ran away from it. And yet she's always, I mean, she, she is escaping the bunker, but she never shies away from like fucking him up if she can. I mean, it's, Holy shit, a boat. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what that means, but okay. Uh, does that work? Does that work when you hold the can upside down to spray it like that? That's that's one thing I did learn from the movie. Is like if you're going to use an aerosol can and you're not sure like the angle that you're holding it at will work, just hold it upside down. That works, right? Is that is that real? Do you know what how you gravity works? <laughs> it's not mean? gravity, Kelly. One, it's aerosol. You know, they would hold the the frozen air can upside down to where the little yeah, nozzle you liquid. press. Uh, no, it, it has doesn't. It has frozen air in it, Kelly. Well, it's not liquid. Well, <laughs> actually, I have no idea what's in there. It could be pixie dust, for all I know, that's in those things. <laughs> You're squirting frozen air. <laughs> no, this it's like a oh she I, what was, that was like nitrogen or what? It anyway, was an ice torch. I just thank you. I just learned if you ever have one of those cans, <laughs> just hold it upside down. It looks way cooler to do it that way. <laughs> uh, I saw um, a movie about. Uh, it's actually called uh, – it's called 400 Days, and it's about these people that go down into a bunker underground to do an experiment based on space travel. Like what if you spend someone in, send someone in space, and they're in isolation with each other for 400 days? So they put these people in this bunker, and they close it up. The agreement's going to be, look, this is a mo- there's a mock spaceship built underground. The agree- agreement is you guys can't leave for 400 days. You have to get used to each other. You have to work with each other. We're going to send little false crises at you. Um, so go. They lock them underground, and in the course of the movie, these people start to suspect, wait a minute. I think we've really been sent into space. <laughs> like it's not a drill. <laughs> <Under> scam. <laughs> like, like it's a real thing. Yeah. Now here's the problem, though. Of the poor, four people that are down there, uh, one of them is an awesome actress named Katie Lotz, uh, and that she's why I watched the movie. But here's the problem. If you're in there and one of the four people is Dane Cook. Oh, fuck. I know. Wait. I know. <laughs> right, Kelly Wand? Is this? Jeez. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. This is, a re- this is the movie, yeah. So It should be him and uh, what's the um, Buffalo 66 guy on the science fiction? Oh, movie? oh, Vincent. That's uh, a Gallo. Gallo from, Gallo. That, from that Mars movie where he's running yeah. ahead of oxygen and says to the woman, we should just make each other feel good before we die. Yeah, it should be the two. Oh, Kelly, I like that script. Oh, wow. It's great. <laughs> I don't know who it cast as the ladies, though. Um, so at the yeah. gas station, was that um, Howard's truck? The gas station. That's this. Oh, very good. I didn't. I didn't catch that thing. This was something. Well, no, that's something Chris is asking. I don't know. Oh no, you're right. You do see like it's almost the close encounter shot. You do see a big old truck pull up behind her, don't you? I I think the idea is we're supposed to think it's ominous, and I bet I bet Chris is right that maybe that was supposed to have been uh, Howard's truck, and that's where he started following her. Maybe. Did any Hmm. of the other listeners see this thing? Because I. We have one other, and let me just read his email. It's very, very quick, but I think it's better to read it than me try to feather it in. This is Grant Stewart. So Grant Stewart says, the sequel nobody wanted, starring an actress nobody likes. Hey! By some hack you've never heard of, and produced by the guys who summoned Damon Lindelof. My tip for watching this movie would be, when you can no longer see Mary Elizabeth Winstead's thighs, 
you should leave and go buy a ticket to the witch. Oh. <laughs> the, the, that is from Grant Stewart. Now, Grant, okay, Grant, I have some advice for Grant. Grant, if you're listening, you need to see a movie called Faults, like like Earthquake Lines, although it's not about that. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is the lead in it, and interestingly enough, don't let this dissuade you, it was directed by her husband. So you might think, oh, it's just a vanity project. She's actually really good in it. But the main reason to see Faults, the real star of this, and he works very closely with Mary Elizabeth Winstead in some really cool scenes, the real star of this is a cool character actor who we like on this podcast um, named Leland Orser. Mm, uh, yeah. We know him as the father and the guest. He's the guy in Seven who does uh, one of the Seven Deadly Sins involving like a blade on his penis or whatever. I never knew what was going on. Uh, so <laughs> before you write off Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Mr. Stewart, Check out Faults. Yeah. I've always liked her. She just it, she makes a lot of movies like this, and she kind of does like a Susanna Hoff's like sideways glare. Like I can, I can see what you're talking about, but she, oh, she strikes yeah. me as, as kind of a, a poor man's Brie Larson. Uh, Does that mean? Oh, just because is that like a Room reference? Well, yeah. uh, oh God, Room is a terrible movie about a woman catching. Well, but you immediately think of the uh, think of Room, not the Room, but you right, think right. Of Room as as this is starting and, and woman in captivity yeah. gets yeah. out. They always get out. What's better, this or Room? Mm. Well, Room has Cloverfield in it. So. One, two, three, not only you and me, I, I would say this because Room thinks it's important. Capital I. Does it? I, oh yeah, because it's I, a novel too. Yeah, I don't think this movie has. You know, this is. You know, it's it's a full length episode of Lost, basically. No, Room. I was done with. In it, like with the first twenty minutes, I was on board, but like after twenty minutes of it, there's there's a scene where you're just like, oh god, really. And this, I just kept waiting for a monster to show up. Hmm. And he didn't. It was so mean of Cloverfield. Uh, Dingus, before we do the 3 by 3 It was mean of Cloverfield. Yeah, be an AWOL with his name on the poster. Be an uh, AWOL. Dingus, tell folks what we saw this week before we do the 3 by 3 We what? saw 10 Cloverfield Lane. No, but what else did we see, which uh, I, I think is in very limited release, probably... Oh, I we saw Midnight gonna... Special. What is that, Dingus? Oh my goodness! Uh, it is a uh, 2016 American um, science fiction family drama movie, uh, directed by Jeff, Jeff Nichols and written by him. Uh, and it, it is about um, a perfect world. Uh, it, it stars. Um, good Lord, who was in that movie? Well, we lo- I loved Michael Joel Edgerton. In it. I was hugely. Yeah. I wasn't crazy about Michael Shannon, and I know this is super. As I was watching this, the whole time I was thinking, "Oh, this is a Dingus movie. He's he's gonna love this." I wasn't crazy about it, um, but I did love Joel Edgerton in this quite a lot. Oh, I thought Joel Edgerton was amazing in it. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised at it. At he's always how good. great he was because uh, he's doing this sort of slight um, uh, southern accent, but not overdrawn. Uh, and I, but I I loved Michael Shannon in this. I'm surprised that you didn't. Yeah, I just felt he was a little on autopilot, kind of. Um, oh God, I didn't. I don't agree with you at all. But uh, but you are right. It is much more of a Dingus movie than an Estelle movie. Yeah, uh, and it actually, I would say, has points of continuity. I don't want to say too much with Ten Cloverfield Lane, in that I feel that's that's you know that's way overboard. 
I feel it's doing two separate things that don't work well together. Mm. It kind of reminded me of the way Tim Cloverfield Lane jumps the shark at one point. It's nowhere near that bad, by the way. I, I did like Midnight Special, but not as much as Dingus, and certainly not as much as Take Shelter, which was his last movie. But at least with uh, Midnight Special, you, Rush. you feel like you're going in a certain direction, and it's not like at the, at the end we're just going to go, huh, surprise, bleh. Yeah. Um, it, with Midnight Special, at least you have a feeling, uh, regardless of what they're doing with the visuals at the end, um, that you're being led in a certain direction. Well, uh, it, it makes sense, and it has a point, which is two things that uh, Tim Cloverfield Lane does it, not do. Exactly, and the, and the father-son relationship is just something that I can't get around, and that that's kind of probably why you label it uh, more as a Dingus movie. And the kid actor was great. I mean, I look forward to seeing yeah. him in more stuff. Uh, I know that Jeff Nichols has another movie coming out this year as well, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Yeah, he, he mentioned that because we got to see it. We actually got to see it with a Q&A, and he talked about it. It's called Loving, right? Yep, yep. Uh, it's coming out November 16th. It's a November. It's basically a Chris awards season release. Oh, holy cat. I uh, don't know who's in it. don't know what it's about. But I was so taken, Dingus, and I'm sure you feel the same way. By just how grounded and regular a person he seemed, and not yeah. like you listen to John, uh, not John Glazer, what's the under the skin guy? Jonathan Glazer, yeah. yeah you listen awesome. to him talk, and you get the sense that there's this genius brain inside this man, and uh, it's like almost more creativity than he can contain. He's amazing. Uh, Jeff Nichols just seems like a really cool, down to earth guy who knows the limitations of what he's doing and what he's not doing, and who just has stories he wants to tell you. Um, right. And he seems like a guy you could have at your gaming table. I mean, or just, like, come over for dinner where <laughs> yeah. we'll talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he didn't seem – yeah, exactly. So I really liked listening to him talk, uh, even though the Q&A was terrible for the guy conducting it. But that, that's another sign, by the way. If you have a terrible moderator doing Q&A, somebody who can still be interesting, even though he's being asked these stupid milk toast questions, <laughs> uh, I, I always appreciate that. Yeah, yeah me too. So – uh, so, Kelly Wong, we're bringing that up because this, is, this isn't this is going to come out in Germany for probably three or four years, I'm guessing. Yeah. So I, I doubt we'll be doing a podcast on it. Um, but we were super excited to go to it. I mean, I mean, I love Jeff Nichols. I mean, I just love, you know, I love mud. I love taking, take shelter. Um, so I was super excited to go see it. And I was, I was all in for it. I mean, I really, really did like the movie a great deal. Well, it did well, by the way. It did. It was only in five oh, theaters. It was a very limited release in five theaters, but it had a very good per theater average. Uh, for that kind of release, we got handed these Cinema Score cards. I don't imagine it's going to do well. Well, I don't know. We'll find out. I, I tried to look up how it, well it did with the Cinema Score. Uh. Uh, Cinema Score is a stupid audience polling where they give you a card and you give the movie either an A, B, C, D, or F when it's <laughs> over. Uh, what? Yeah, and, and a B minus, for instance, is a bad Cinema Score. Like that's that's how B minus is. It's really for just dumb people who don't see a lot of movies who are impressionable. Like that's the cinema score. Like that's how that's what you take away from a movie cinema score. Uh, and Dingus and I, independently, by the way, I think we both thought the other guy was going to turn in his card. Dingus <laughs> and I both declined to participate. <laughs> so yeah, just go. I liked it or I didn't. Like it. I just don't want to be – no, I'm going to recuse myself from any cinema score, Tally. Oh. I mean if you want to sit down with me and talk to me about the things I liked and like about the mood, that's fine. But I don't want to give you like no, some sort of hard. weird binary thing. I mean, well, a, also, I like as a, so I do a lot of reviewing, and I, I love rating systems. I fundamentally 
have a problem with a rating system that presents itself as a relationship between a teacher telling a student whether what he's done is correct or incorrect. Like right. the, the dynamic that's created when you are using an A, B, C, or D, it's like it creates the sense that you're grading a paper or that you as the teacher somehow know more than the person who's created something. Yeah. Uh, a rating should just be a measure of whether you like something. And this idea of, you know, I'm the professor, you're the student, I know better than you, you didn't do a very good job, so see. Like that encourages that kind of perspective on, on evaluation, which I just think is bad news. I didn't like your math. That's just exactly right, right, yeah. Uh, so at any rate, yeah, Dingus and I didn't participate. But so it, it did well, a limited release. I think it's going to open wider uh, next month. Uh, and I imagine the studios will have some confidence in it after its uh, financial showing in, in L.A. here. So, well, tell them Hamburg is really excited about it. <laughs> Just hang in there, hang in there for a couple of years, Kelly Wand. I'm sure it'll make it. There. Yeah, a couple of years is nothing, Germany yeah. side. It's just two winners. <laughs> uh, let's do a three by three. So I, I don't know. I, I appreciate everyone indulging me in this. I want to talk about how cancer is portrayed in movies. Uh, what sort of uses we see it? Uh, how it's expressed? How it's used? As I mentioned last week, I got some great news based on my post-treatment one-year scans. Uh, things look very good. There was some concern that because the cancer was in my lymph nodes, that over the ensuing months, it might uh, manifest itself somewhere else. So far, that hasn't happened. And if you can make it a year, that's good news. You make it three years, that's even better news. Five years, you're pretty much in the clear. So great news. I'm well on my way. And one of the things I've really appreciated is people who are willing to talk with me about it and ask me about it and to let me talk about it. So this being a movie podcast and this being our three by three, I want to talk about how cancer is used in movies. Uh, so I, I think the way I expressed it is notable uses of cancer in movies, by the way, that aren't about cancer. There are plenty of movies that are like, oh, somebody got cancer and it's terrible and we're going to tell you a story about it. That's not what I'm interested in. Uh, I'm just interested in how it is, occurs in regular non-cancer uh, movies. Uh, what did that Kelly one was this difficult? Because <laughs> I, I felt, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I had a, there's a bazillion uh, instances of this. Did you have a hard time finding stuff? Well, all three of mine are terms of endearment. <laughs> well, wait a minute, you just yeah, spoiled it. The, what's the movie? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> he got you. He got you on that, Kelly. Yeah, Dingus is cool. Yeah. Dingus wins. All right, Dingus, you'll be introducing next week's topic, so why don't you start us with your number three pick? All right, mine, uh, and I apologize for starting this off on a really uh, difficult and uh, heavy note. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to do this, but... Um, well, it's a difficult, heavy thing. Why do you say you don't mean to do it? I mean, it's... I mean, I, well, I feel bad about that. I mean, I feel bad about, you know... Uh, bringing the podcast down or, or saying like some heavy stuff. Hello, anyway. some dude just said we're going to talk about cancer. I think I've already done everything I can do to bring it down. All right, fair enough, fair enough. But well, we don't know what he's going to say, Tom. That's true, that's true, good point. Here's a quote from it. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about bone cancer, Mr. Nugent, but it eats you up inside bit by bit. There's a Ted Nugent biopic or something? What is that? Yeah, the Ted Nugent character is in the movie Fletch. And so, um, <laughs> he's, he's uh, trolling yeah. it. He trolled this Kelly wand. Um, so, uh, I actually uh, thought the line was from Fletch till just now. Yeah. 
so I, I actually really do love this topic very, very much. Um, uh, I think uh, my other uh, choices are going to be you know, standard for what a, a lot of other people are going to choose. Um, but I had to choose Fletch uh, because of the way that I think, and, and when Thomas introduced the topic last week, um, the way cancer is used as this, um, as this trigger word almost in movies uh, and uh, as a way to make us feel a certain thing going in. Uh, and I really appreciate the fact that Tom's like, um, you know, talk about the way cancer is used in movies, but let's not do cancer themed movies necessarily. Um, so uh, I, 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 this is one of the earliest, and this is 1985. Um, this is before cancer really touched my life and it touches my life obviously because Tom is my, uh, one of my closest friends. Um, and so it impacted my life in a huge way, uh, in a way that I can't even describe. Um, but this is way before that. This is 1985 before I even graduated from high school. Um, and, and so it's, it's still used as a way to, uh, to trigger something. And so this is Alan Stanwyck, um, played by Tim Matheson who would eventually go on to play the vice president of the United States in West Wing, where I really started to really like the guy. And I, I liked him so much because he, he'd been in Fletch. But it was used to get um, Erwin and Fletcher to do something that he wanted to do. It was part of a con. And the con is saying, look, I've got bone cancer. I'm going to die in a certain amount of time. So I need you to murder me in order so that my uh, life insurance policy can go off in a certain way and 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 be paid off. If 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 this if this doesn't happen, if you don't do this for me, then it can't. But it's part of a con. He's pretending to have cancer, uh, but he's using it as a trigger word. As many movies use this as a trigger word. So I'm, I'm not I'm not being glib here um, necessarily, uh, but I like the way that this movie uses the word. Uh, the way a lot of movie use a lot of movies use the word improperly later on, but it works. Uh, like in in Fletch, I don't remember anything about Fletch. Like it, it actually works. It, it it gets him to go along with the con. Um, it it gets him to go along with the con, but he's he's what what Alan Stanwyck doesn't know is that Chevy Chase Chevy Chase's character Irwin Fletcher is a um, investigative journalist. Uh, so he's already looking at this weird drug thing that's going on at the beach. Um, so it's a little bit silly because he's already an investigative journalist, so he's not going to take what uh, Alan Sandwick says at face value. Um, and he's going to start to look into it, and and he goes to the doctors. I mean, it, it's a weird, goofy comedy uh, in addition to being a, a kind of a mystery uh, movie. Oh, so Chevy Chase is investigating uh, Tim Matheson's claim that he has bone cancer. Eventually, he does. Because, but he's already investigating things at the beach. But um, he's investigating the drug drug trade at the beach so he can write about it. Right. He's a journalist, and Tim Matheson's character, Alan Stanwyck, uh, tracks him down and says, because you know, based on based on basically based on the fact that Chevy Chase has the same build as Tim Matheson. And if he gets, uh, you know, killed and burned up in an automobile, uh, 
uh, I can I can make him seem like he was me um, because he's setting him up. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's kind of a setup, but it's right. a, it's also a con. It's it's sort of like the big sleep for idiots in a way. And it's uh, using this idea of sympathy for like a cancer patient to. Uh, like, like that's the that's the hook for it. Exactly, he's right. saying I have bone cancer. This is how bone cancer works. I don't have anywhere to go. I have, there's nothing I can do about it. I need you to kill me, and I'm asking you to have sympathy on me and kill me, right. uh, in order so that and I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars in order to do that, so that the money will go to the right people. Ah, I didn't realize. So that's the premise for Fletch. Like that's the. Uh that's right. the wind-up for the story. Right. It's a MacGuffin. But the the reason they choose it is because um, because of the way cancer is used in movies in modern times and the way the movie, this movie in particular, uses it almost in a sort of meta way if you look back based on how it's used now. Because I think often cancer is like thrown in. Uh, and and uh, this is something I was talking about with uh, Alexander this week. It's this, I mean, you can't talk about cancer, you can't like throw in a heart attack in the same way that you would throw in cancer. I mean, a heart attack is definitive. Um, it's like, uh, he's going to have a heart attack, so let's let's all do something about that. Um, cancer has a different a different implication as far as the long term of, of what you can do in a movie or what you can do with motivation. And so that's why I really love the way that it's used in Fletch. Yeah, you can see it coming, and it's gonna like it's the difference between a, a hurricane coming ashore or a tornado suddenly appearing. You know, exactly. heart attack. You don't know when you're gonna have a heart attack, but cancer, that's something you get told about. You have to live with it. It's an inevitability. It's something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And it changes your lifestyle. It changes your uh, choices. Um, but yeah, exactly. The, that analogy about um, tornadoes is great. Kelly Wand, what's your third favorite use of cancer in a movie that's not a cancer movie? So no terms of endearment. Uh, my number three is uh, Cancer Boy from Brain Candy. Did you ever see that movie? The Kids uh, in the Hall movie? I did not. I don't know. Brain oh, the um, the Kids in the Hall movie? Yeah. Oh. You remember Cancer Boy? No. The I, I, yeah. I have not seen uh, I have not seen their movie. Is Amy Sedaris involved in that in any way? I don't know. Oh, I'm thinking of Strangers with Candy. That's a different thing. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Uh, She's okay, not so Canadian. Tell us about uh, Cancer Boy from the Kids in the Hall skit. Or, or Cancer it, Boy. Hmm? It's one of the boldest jokes I've ever seen in a movie. It's like still, so I, I always wonder if it was. I don't know. I've never seen Cancer handled quite the same way as Cancer Boy. So maybe hmm. it should be my number one, but. Well, obviously, you've got two that are better than this, so uh, yeah, tell us about it. <laughs> he's like a bald dude in a baseball cap, a red cap. Oh, like you know, I have seen this. It's D- Dave Foley does it, right? Yeah. Is it- uh, no. It's, it's not one of the other guys. But I think I have seen this. Go ahead. So, yeah. Yeah, so he's a celebrity, and his job, he basically just shows up at press events and, like, interacts with the characters who invented this pill. Um, But he, like, and he has a music video where he whistles. Do you remember that part? I do not. It's just about social discomfort, I think. Sure, I, sure, uh, yeah. And just because to me, the social discomfort over cancer is fascinating because it does seem it's like it's what Digga said. It's true. It's like a heart attack. No one goes ah. like everyone's voices get hushed or something, which is weird because you think 
like back in old times when people died from battle injuries a lot or the plague, they probably didn't whisper the word plague. Oh, he's got the plague. Like they probably just lived with it and dealt with it mm-hmm. and were sad about it, but it wasn't like, I don't know, evasive. Well, there is this, like, I wonder, is there this, uh, I mean, certainly attitudes have changed a lot over the, the passing years, but I, I wonder if there was ever a sense of, like, like shame, or do you hide having cancer, or, like, I never quite understood why, and I was certainly... It was a I, separate thing. Yeah, yeah, and I certainly felt the same way. I mentioned a, an anecdote last week when I was at a party and someone pointed out, oh, that guy has testicular cancer, uh, and... I felt like I was like, oh, don't say anything to him or, you know, steer yeah. clear of that. It's weird stigma, but it shouldn't be because everyone right, right. knows someone who either has a – like my dad died of cancer. It's something I don't – I don't really avoid. Like it doesn't affect movies I see with cancer in them. Right, right. right. Well, yeah, yeah. It's just – it's part of why. I mean it's a disease. It's like any It's what disease. Ebert – or Roger Ebert, like there were like – uh, pictures of him after he got his his jaw surgery, mm-hmm. and just like, oh, Ebert scene, shocking sight, and he was just like, look, this is what it looks like. I don't know what, she is, what right, right. it seems weird that you like you're being weird about it, really, right. um, and that's kind of the truth. So, well, I think there's the I think there's this this um I, I don't know I've been thinking about the, this a lot this week because uh, you know. Um, uh, both of my 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 dad and my stepfather uh had to deal with prostate cancer um and my dad was really reluctant to tell me about it until he came out to see me and and talked to me about it in person i was really angry at him um for not telling me earlier about it um but, but i think there's there's this 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 weird thing about um i don't know uh violating somebody's uh, personal life. If you ask them about this kind of thing, and 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 I, and I listened again to what, the way Tom described it. You know, I, I rolled up our podcast to listen to the way Tom described how this topic was going to go, um, and I really actually love listening to Tom talk about um, how things are going now, uh, and I loved hearing him hearing that anecdote about going to that party. Um, and both parties actually, um, but I think that there is sort of a—it's not just a sense of it's a taboo subject, subject so much as um, am, am I violating your personal space by asking you something that is so personal? Right. But why is that specific to cancer, though? Like, there's well, a lot of well, questions because just... because if you have tuberculosis or if you have. Uh, something that I can't see. I'm not going to really ask you, like, how's your tuber- tuberculosis going? Because nobody talks about that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. It, it just feels like it feels personal to people. I think. I also feel it kind of highlights a part of a person's body, and it creates a sense that you're just yeah. a sum of organs, and right. one of them doesn't work. Like yeah. one of them broke, and in a way too. I kind of think there's a hierarchy of levels of dignity of cancer, uh-huh. uh, and I, you know, I got lucky with throat throat cancer. You know, like I, I feel having like testicular cancer or even prostate cancer, that would be embarrassing in a different way because you're basically acknowledging, you know, hey, I got an anus or whatever. I mean, you're, you're that's that's like parts of your body that you don't talk about, you don't acknowledge. Uh-huh. Um, the the most noble cancer I think is brain cancer, because that's like your higher function. Uh, so there's a there's a I wish I could think of the name of this movie. There's a movie with Pierce Brosnan 
where he goes up on the top of a building. He's a public figure, and he's been disgraced. So he's going to go to the top of the skyscraper, and he's going to jump off. He's going to commit suicide. But while he's up there, he runs into two other people who are doing the same thing. <laughs> and, and the movie, it becomes this like goofy, oh, aren't they wacky, stupid movie. And I wish I could remember the other actor, but uh, there's a female woman. There's a woman up there who's going to jump and kill herself, and she later explains why. And we lastly find out about the young man up there. And it was some young actor. I wish I could remember who. Not Ryan Gosling, but someone of that Jay Courtney. Oh, God, no. But you find out he later admits, oh, I have brain cancer. And that's like the super noble one. There's a movie called The Opposite of Sex, which I really like. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christina Ricci is in it. And she goes to the – there's a character that she doesn't doesn't like. Was it her stepfather? Uh, And he has died, and she is fond of saying at a couple of points in the movie that he died of ass cancer. And she's using that. I mean she's a very acerbic character in the movie, and she's kind of using that to insult him. So there are these different these different gradations of, hey, a piece of your body has betrayed you. Uh, you know what piece is it? You know, like yeah. what piece of you went wrong? Yeah. Well, cancer boy, I think it's everything. He just uh, he's like kind of. He well, just looks doughy every time you see him, and the movie's about pharmaceuticals. So there's like it's sort of a complex joke, and it, the way it's it's handled so remorselessly in the movie, like I just think it's one of those defining jokes where it's like you. You'll either think it's really funny or, like, you'll, right. you'll get really offended by it. So right. No, and I love that it's, are, yeah, that it's about social discomfort. I mean, that's... that's yeah, yeah. Uh, Kelly so, Wanda, I don't know if you remember this. In the original Omen, do you remember there's a, a mysterious priest character who's trying to kill Damien? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and at one point, he reveals that he, uh, you know, he's doing it. He's very reckless about it. He's probably going to kill doing it. And at one point, he reveals, I think, to David Warner... Uh, that he that he is I think he uses the phrase like shot through with cancer, like he explains he has cancer and it's all over his body, uh, and he's about to get killed by having a spike driven through him that falls off the top of a steeple. Uh, but I just remember hearing that as a kid and thinking, oh my god, what is that like? Like yeah. if you were to cut I him open. The devil with- was bad. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I just remember this idea that ooh, it's all over inside of him. Uh, you know, instead of guts, he's just got cancer in there. That's that's crazy. Uh, I don't know why you asked Kelly about that, Tom. The Omen? Dingus, you don't know movies from the 70s. Who who directed The Omen? Goonies. Richard Donner. Richard Donner, hello. Wait, what's your point? My point is that I watched that movie. Oh, right, I was thinking Superman, Kelly. (laughs) You're right, Lethal Weapon, of course. That is weird he made a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, Kelly, so you mentioned... since I was, since I got my diagnosis, I vividly remember a couple of occasions when cancer was mentioned in a movie, and how differently it made me feel. Uh, and not necessarily in a bad way. It wasn't like, oh my god, no, I have cancer. No. I mean, it just made me appreciate in a way what the movie was doing because in these two instances, but my number one, I, I imagine some people can guess. Uh, well, I'll talk about it when I get to it. But my number three and my n- number yeah. two are just movies I saw at a certain time that uses cancer in a, in a relatively casual way, but how much it meant to me and how effective it was for me. So my number three uh, <laughs> is a goofy zombie movie. And Kelly Wand, if you haven't seen this, you need to. Uh, again, Cheap Thrills, that's a Kelly Wand movie. If you haven't seen a movie called Wormwood Road of the Dead. Oh, I loved it. Oh, you've seen it. Yeah, I love it. The okay, Australian yeah. one with the yeah. fool. 
the, yeah. the Roach Turner brothers, Kia and Tristan Roach Dash Turner, are their names. There's a lot of good ideas in it. A lot They're, of interesting. Well, the thing is, for a zombie movie, like zombie movies are so formulaic these days. Yeah. These guys came up with some really awesome twists and a cool new ecology and a different take on how the characters interact with the zombies. It's and, the Australian Renaissance. And you know, it, it basically is like I, I watch it and I think this must be like this must be what it was like seeing like a Sam Raimi movie for the first time, yeah. like when he was in his heyday. Uh, like this is like or Peter sit- Jackson. Exactly right, right. This is sitting down to see Heavenly Creatures or uh, or Dead Evil Alive. Dead Two. <laughs> Dead Alive. Okay, there you go, Kelly. One. I don't know where you're going with. <laughs> well, That's what Heavenly Creatures was like. Well, I think of that as uh, <laughs> early, like more intimate storytelling Peter Jackson rather than big crazy budgets and effects. Well, yeah. Frighteners That's Peter Jackson. Sad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not as big a fan of Dead Alive as you are. But You're not? No, not it's really. Great. You don't like the baby and the mom? Too, Come on, like, mom. It's a little too gross for me. Tom, yeah. what? Whereas this Wormwood, is, so- Road of the Dead, which is really tasteful. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So, all right, there's a scene in Wormwood, Road of the Dead, which is just a great... Too super gross exciting, for you. Uh, uh, it, like Kelly said, it's an Australian renaissance. Australia has been – pretty much any time Australia has great movies, it's a renaissance. They have renaissances over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, great filmmaking out of Australia. It must be something in the water. Uh, Wormwood Road of the Dead has a scene where these three characters are in a car, and the car is not going to be able to get power to drive away until daylight. And zombies have come across them. So the car is surrounded by zombies. It's reinforced, so they should be okay. But they're going to have to sit there all night while zombies are pounding on the, the car, reaching through the bars, trying to grab them. Uh, hopefully the car will hold out. And the characters are our, our dashing lead guy, a fellow named Barry, who's the, the, the sort of hero yeah. of the movie. Barry's pretty dashing, neatly turned yeah. beard and stuff. Uh, the Aboriginal, which is one of the original bits in Wormwood, is, has an Aboriginal character who's kind of the comic relief. Um, He's the rake of the bunch. Yep. Uh, and there had been two other characters that they come across who are holed up in a in a barn, and they've got – actually, three of them. They've got armor, and they're holding the zombies off, and uh, one of them ends up coming with them. He's an older fellow, uh, and he has this great <laughs> suit of armor, and he's kind of like the elder statesman of the zombie-killing group. So they're stuck in this car, and the aborigine says – is this the worst fucking nightmare of your life, you know, that we're stuck here? And the old guy says, oh, no fucking way, mate. And the aborigine says, what the fuck could be worser than this? The old guy, he pauses, he takes a drink, and you're wondering, you're like, geez, you're surrounded by zombies. You know, what could be worse than this? And he has this really little bit where he talks about his son being diagnosed with brain cancer, how he was seven years old, and he died uh, in his father's arms. Huh. And, 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 he, and he explains that, and he says, that that was way worse than this. This is fucking nothing. Hmm. And what a weird thing to do yeah. in a goofy zombie movie to to basically take you out of it and say, it could be worse. You know, there are things that are worse. Here we are, we're showing you this hyper-violent, crazy, over-the-top fantasy about zombies, but, you know, this, this is nothing. This You're having fun right now. Uh, and when he's not the main character either and he's about to die he's about to have this really cool yeah. death sequence too which is kind of played for laughs as well uh, but it's a really poignant moment and I when I saw it uh, I was uh, this was after I would have gotten my treatment 
But before, I found out if it did any good, and the treatment sucked, especially the recovery from it. So all this crappy stuff I had to put up with, and then I had to wait to see if, oh, it's still there, or oh, it's gone. I didn't know. So I'm watching this movie that has this really poignant moment. And, you know, as far as I know, this is this is lethal for me. I don't know. Uh, and it just really stood out for me. And I really love that they put that in there. And it's 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 not a joke. Like it's it's a, it really gives this man this serious, dignified moment. And from this, by the way, he then explains, you know, zombie movies tend to they don't really explain why it happens, but they'll have characters speculate about it. He speculates that it's from the book of, of Revelation and that it's wormwood. You know, it's because comets had come down the night before, and the implication is they turned everyone into zombies. So he then basically explains the title of the movie, and he suggests this religious reason for it happening, that maybe God is testing them. Uh, and it's kind of like in Dawn of the Dead, where – the, Yeah, the main character talks about his grandmother saying that when hell is full, the dead will walk the earth. Uh, yeah. But also it was a Venus probe. It was a satellite. Yeah, well, yeah a probe, not a satellite. Yeah. Right. There's kind Which of a good then worked on. Well, there's a counter joke to that in Cloverfield, where they <laughs> say, "Well, even Howard doesn't think that's going to be the case." What what's going what's going to be the case? The zombies. Oh, the zombies. That's right, Dingus. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Even well, Howard, the, Howard, Howard, Howard. Yeah, I mean, he's not. He's, he doesn't think that. Well, and, and zombies, and this is this is nothing new. Like like zombies themselves are a clear metaphor for for cancer. I mean, they can mean many yeah, things: right. the inevitability of death. Uh, entropy, communism, conformism, certainly the idea of infectious diseases, like it taps into our fear of that. But as, as a metaphor, you know, so cancer is when the DNL, DNA in your cell, it screws up how it replicates into a new cell, and it makes a, a really screwy one that would normally just die. But instead of the other cell just dying and falling apart, it makes more of its bad cells. These cells multiply more quickly. They become a mass of bad cells develops into a tumor, and it somehow screws up whatever organ it's in right, by competing for the resources it needs. It basically shuts that organ down. Uh, the whole idea of zombies, if you were to zoom that out to a dynamic where instead of dealing with cells, we're dealing with people, zombies are the idea that when you die, instead of dying, you stick around and you make more of these aberrant versions of people who eat flesh or tear people apart or are infected with rage virus or whatever. And every th- every healthy thing you come in contact with, you make. Right, exactly. Yeah. Spread the infection. You are a tumor composed of a horde of you know ravenous people. And the result, because you don't generally just have a zombie movie about, hey, we're in the woods and there's zombies. Zombie movies tend to be about the, the breakdown of the social order, which is analogous to the breakdown of the body. Um and, and it's this fear that we have that civilization, the social order, is just as vulnerable as the human body, I, I think. Um, so, I, yeah, that's that's a tangent. But but I do think that's one of the things that zombie mythology uh, draws from and certainly is, is born out of. Uh, so, Wormwood, Road of the Dead, the, the one guy's great little poignant reference. Uh, I saw it at a point in my life when, you know, that really stuck out for me. Uh, and I think it's well done. And besides, that is a fantastic movie, as you pointed out, Kelly Wand. That doctor. Cancer field lane. What? That that doctor in uh like the doctor scenes. You know what I'm talking about in the trailer with uh, in Wormwood. No. No, uh, you should see it again. <laughs> Dingus, what's your second? Yeah, how can you? The doctor guy. He looks like Hugh Laurie from from House. In the hazmat suit. Oh yeah, yeah. Where she's 
Yeah, I yeah. love that stuff. Like that, you don't see that yeah, in yeah, the other yeah. zombie movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and her arc's interesting too. Oh, she's awesome, Bianca Brady. Man, I can't wait till she does more movies. Yeah, she was fantastic. Yeah. All right, Cygnus, what is your second favorite uh, use of cancer in a movie that's not a movie about cancer? All right, this one is a pretty obvious one, I think. But uh, watching it again, uh, I couldn't uh, not choose it. So here's a quote from it. Uh, I'm in a pretty lonely place. No one will have sex with me. Oh, that was my number two, too. Your number two, too? Yeah. Isn't isn't it Chloe? Oh, yeah, it's Chloe. Uh, It's Chloe from Fight Club. Um, Oh! (laughs) I was really... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I know somebody who knows that actress, by the way, who's talked about this. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. I was reluctant to choose it because it's another... Like somebody pretending to have cancer mo- moment kind of thing, um, but when I watched uh, when I watched it again this week, I was so struck by um, about by Chloe herself um, uh, because I think some of it is played for I don't know not, I don't I wouldn't say it's played for laughs it's played for gallows yeah, humor, I would say yeah it, yeah it's gallows wait humor. she's not uh, making it up. No, no, no. I, I'm just talking about the way the movie plays it. Yeah, Ed Norton and uh, what's your face uh, invent having cancer. They don't have cancer. They're making oh, it up to the meeting. Right, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but it, it's I wouldn't call it silly. I guess galley, gallows humor is, is is a good way to put it. Um, but from a personal standpoint, just that that idea of what she's actually going through, Chloe is actually going through, um, and that idea. Because this is something I actually think about. It's like, when's the last time we can have sex? You know, if I were to be, and I was thinking about this from the point of view of, uh, of uh, you know, of Tom's point of view, because I've thought of things from his point of view a lot of times, um, just of the point of view of of getting sick, and maybe maybe this is it. Maybe maybe you're going to be told. Uh, you're going to die in three months. You're going to die in six months. I remember when uh, 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 Tom was first talking to me about this and some of those early months where he's like, I don't know. I, I don't know. Are they going to tell me that I have three months or are they going to tell me uh, this is treatable? I mean, he, does, he doesn't know at that point. And as somebody who loves him incredibly, um, the whole idea of like, oh, God, I could, I could lose this guy uh, or uh, – the idea of if it's happening to you, am I going to die? Um, so when's the last time I'm going to have sex? So that because sex is incredibly important to us as people, <laughs> um, and an important part of my life, obviously, uh, because I'm a person. Um, just that that idea um, <laughs> of what Chloe is going. I'm sorry to make it silly. I don't mean to make it silly, but watching this again and watching Chloe. Talk about this in this in this moment of desperation, where she's saying, um, "I've got I've got um, I've got porn available. I've got uh, yeah, I don't know. What, I've, I've got lube. Yeah, I've got right, lube. I've got right. amyl nitrate." She leans into the mic. Oh my god, the amyl nitrate. That's right. Yeah, and then yeah. she gets she gets let off. But her desperation, I just you know, whenever I've seen that, I've just thought, well, "When's the last time that's going to happen for me? When is the last time I'm going to do that?" When are you going to go up to the microphone and go? Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, Fight Club for me, that, that moment, it, it's more, it's more about Chloe than it is about what 
uh, Ed Norton and um, Helena Bonham Carter are doing and messing around as far as who gets to divide up which cancer group they're going to go to. It's all about Chloe for me and about her desperation in that moment. Um, that's just a huge moment for me in this movie uh, that is not about cancer, but I love the way that it uses cancer for that particular character. Uh, there's a writer named Paul Bowles who wrote uh, – he was a novel writer, and one of his novels was The Sheltering Sky, which was made into a movie that I love that Dingus doesn't like. And there's a great there's a great passage from it that struck me. And I, I, I would have seen this movie when I was in college and young and dumb and impressionable. So if it's terrible, I didn't know at the time, and I liked it enough. And now that I'm grown up and I've seen it, I still don't think it's terrible. Um, and I actually read the book. The book is great. And Dingus – you love the police. The song Tea in the Sahara is from Sheltering Sky. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so there's a great passage uh, from that book where he says, because we don't know when we will die, we get to think of life as an inexhaustible well. You know, everything will happen to us. Uh, there is kind of a – like knowing – like not necessarily knowing when you're going to die, but when you're diagnosed, like that shifts – and there's not this sense of an inexhaustible well anymore. And as trite and cliched as this sounds, it is definitely true that you appreciate things more. And not necessarily out of a sense of desperation, like, oh, fuck, it's my last time to, to you know, eat, eat a great piece of sushi or whatever. Uh, it's just you appreciate how awesome stuff can be. Um, and yeah, very, that, as weird as it sounds, Tom, that's very reminiscent of Blade Runner. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I could see that because that, that's. I mean, you could almost think of that in, incept date thing uh, as a as a kind of a cancer. Here's your dead end. Here's when your life is going to end. You know it. Things are going to be all the more beautiful to you. Absolutely, Dingus. Yeah. So. All right, Kelly Wand. What is your second favorite instance of cancer in a movie that's not? Well, we should feel that way anyway. We should, but because we don't know when we'll die, we get to think of life as an inexhaustible. We get well. to pretend. Right. Right. Just like when we're turning on the water faucet, we think that water is going to keep coming through. We've gotten really good at it. Yeah. It's a strain, but is that a skill we really need? I guess we have to have it. Well, it's a coping mechanism. I mean, yeah. it's. Yeah, absolutely. It's usually stable. <laughs> if I may. Yeah, um, my number two is the same as Dingus's, um, just because I think I don't you know. stole his. You just now stole his. No, that's not true. No, he said it early. Okay, I did, but it's just so funny, and I, I just think cancer joke, like funny cancer jokes, or their tightrope acts that are hard to pull off. And mm -hmm. So I promised my number one's not one two, but I really that was the Chloe was the first one I thought of actually. The, the I don't think of it as a funny cancer joke. I mean, I honestly don't. I you mean, don't? I, I take it very seriously. Lube and amyl nitrate? You don't think that's meant to be... It's exaggerated. I mean, I think it's grotesque. It's, it's an exaggeration. Right. It's grotesque. That's Dark a better humor. way to put it. Yeah. And social discomfort again, too, because everyone's exactly. looking away, and you don't really... You don't, you don't know if she succeeds or not. But think about her desperation. I mean, that, that watching yeah, it, it again. I mean, I, I mean, I watched a, a, a couple of movies this week, trying to see it through the lens of of doing this topic. Um, but Fight Club takes Fight Club, place in a universe, self-contained kind of universe. I thought. I, I mean, I disagree. I think I don't. I don't see what she's going through is funny. Uh. 
Well, like, her dialogue's funny. I mean, that's the thing. It's She's the last time, she's looking for the last time she can have sex. I mean, I think part of it, too, is what we're supposed to understand at this point, how facile the protagonists are being with this idea of, I go to these meetings to feel better about myself. You know, this is the dark side of that. This is, this is kind of what they're belittling by using these people is sort of right. this sort of this is what they're going for just like making fun of his his bitch tits i mean right 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 yeah. biggest i never th- i that's not something i thought i i would hear you say out loud yeah. <laughs> can we have one more of those fingers no we can't <laughs> uh all right so fight club uh my second uh favorite use of cancer and, and again this has to do with where i was at with my own situation uh, I'd had this lump in my throat for a long time, and I was having problems getting like medical coverage to get it taken care of. So the best I could do was drive across town and see this awful, awful, awful ear, nose, throat physician, uh, who I've described to some of my friends as Saruman, because he looked like <laughs> he was a super old dude. He looked super dour. He didn't want to have to deal with me. Uh, when he was trying to look down my throat, he was really put out by the fact that I couldn't keep from gagging when he would jam this mirror back there. What? Uh, what an was, asshole. He was what terrible. That? And, you know, he, he finally was like, okay, well, let's go ahead and do a biopsy. And I said, well, what's the, you know, what's, what are, what am I, what things could happen? He's like, well, it could be viral. And I said, okay, well, what's the worst case scenario? Could this be cancer? Um, and he said, well, I've never seen these symptoms where it didn't turn out to be lymphoma. And that's what oh, I was left uh. with. Waiting for a biopsy, waiting more weeks for the biopsy. And I didn't know, uh, like, I, you know, I knew what lymphoma was, but I didn't know if that was a death sentence. I didn't know what recoverability. So I spending time after that Googling and trying to self-diagnose Googling is like a terrible thing to do. So this is the period before I got the biopsy, but after this, this guy had said, eh, it's normally lymphoma when I see this, I went and saw this movie called Guardians of the Galaxy. And Guardians of the Galaxy opens oh my. Oh, with this um, super wow. emotional scene that sets the stage for why you have sympathy for Chris Pratt's character, where his mother, on her deathbed, uh, she's a cancer victim. She dies of cancer, and he just he's overwhelmed. He can't take it. And he runs out on her and at this point gets abducted and never sees her again. But what it sets up for us is this sympathy for him – having lost someone so close to him and also for having been unable to deal with it. Um, and it, it, it brings up the importance of the mixtape to him, uh, which is a great payoff at the end of the movie and a potentially great lead into the next movie when he discovers a new mixtape. But it gives him this poignant sense of, of regret about what he has and hasn't done in her final moments. Uh, and that just worked so well. And not just for me, by the way. I mean, I'm not just saying, oh, it's cheesy, but it worked for me because I was in my situation. I think it's – in Dingus, from your reaction, I presume that moment works great for you as well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's bringing up a huge amount of emotions for me because yeah. I make mixtapes for my kid, and um, we share that music all the time, and some of that music is from that movie. Yeah. Um, and I'm just remembering the, the later moment – you know the climax of the movie where he reaches out and his mom's reaching out to him. Uh, yeah, that's it's mm. hugely moving to me. Yeah, and it's part of what makes that movie so good is 
It's got ridiculous stuff, you know, a talking raccoon in a tree. That juxtaposition, yeah. Yeah, and it takes this stuff seriously. Like, James Gunn isn't just like, oh, this is goofy, let's just make a silly movie out of it. He's, like, wanting to put emotional power behind these characters and make us care about them. And well, the next gar- thing you see after that is him dancing around in the cave. So you're like, oh, he turned out okay, so you can kind of, like... Well, it's it's a, like, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's he's like... playing the tape she gave him. Right, right, it's right, like... Right, 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 yeah. Um, and, and you know, and and God, it just makes me think of you know some of the things I will pass on to my son when I die are the music that I love. I mean, that's that's a huge thing that you can you can hand off to somebody is is teaching them to love music that you loved um, in the music of your era and the previous era that you love, um, and that he's doing that dancing in that cave to the music that she gave him. Is really meaningful. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's a. That's I didn't even think choice. of that, Tom. Damn. And I think it's a great choice on on James uh, James Gunn. Yeah, James Gunn's part. James Gunn. Yeah, two of it. Because we were talking about James Jamie Gum earlier. I just yeah. I had it wrong. But yeah, James Gunn. Uh, what if you like it, Weird Al music? That would have been for that would have made for a very different emotional tone, Kelly Wand. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he would have been doing just eat it. God. Uh, Dingus, favorite uh, use of cancer in a movie that's not about cancer. All right. Um, so here's a quote from it. Uh, things I've beaten, things most people never have heard of, and now I'm going to be done in by this. I have a guess, but uh, I don't want to just start saying things that are runners-up. All right, I'll Superman. tell you. It's, uh, it's from the movie Constantine. Oh my God, Dingus! Oh, what a great pick! That whole movie is about I a guy dealing with number one, Tom. That's a, no, that whole movie is about a guy dealing with cancer, isn't it? No, you're gonna. When I say my number one, you're gonna go. Oh, right, of course. Duh. It's it's a movie about a guy dealing with cancer, but about but not about cancer. Um, and it's about a guy also just dealing with um the choices he's made in his life, uh, and um how those choices will affect where he's going to go after life, um. And I watched it again. Man, I cannot tell you guys. I know it, it, there's a reason why it wound up on my top ten for the the year that it was. Uh, it was a, it's a 2005 movie. It wound up on my top ten list. And I still remember the moment I finished watching that movie, and I I think I emailed Tom to say, yeah, I'm I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but a Keanu Reeves movie is going to wind up on my top 10 this year. And he's like, what are you talking about? Um, uh, but god damn, uh, I love the way that, that cancer is used in this movie, uh, the way that cigarettes are used in this movie as an understanding of it. Um, there's this weird moment where he blows up a, a cigarette pack and you actually see the warning sitting there as the cigarette pack burns. Um, and then you see the the devil actually take the cancer out of his lungs, of course. Um, uh, I, I absolutely love the way that there is a ticking clock yeah. for his life because of this. Uh, and this is why this is my number one, because it it is a ticking clock for him that he has to figure out, um, how do I justify my life? How do I rectify the things that I have done wrong? And how do I change things so that I can um, so that I can be different in the afterlife than I thought was going to happen. Uh, I mean, the way John Constantine has to deal with uh, lung cancer, uh, which is 
kind of his choice, you know, quite different from what, um, what Tom went through. Um, he chose this in a, in a weird way. Uh, but he now wants to make a different choice. Um, I, I absolutely love the way that it plays out in this movie. That's a great pick thing. It's because you're right. It's not a movie about cancer, but ultimately, and this is part of what makes that script so good. It's about a guy who makes choice, uh, makes a certain choice when he's diagnosed. And that's the, that's sort of the crux of the movie, despite the fact that God and the devil and psychics and demons get involved. Like that's right. what it all comes down to. I love that. Yeah. Kelly one, what's your favorite? What, what's something that's better than fight club as far as the use of cancer in a movie? But I will do an exchange from it. I look forward to hearing this. <laughs> what about it, Nikki? Is it socially positive? Well, I think we live in overstimulated times. We crave stimulation for its own sake. We gorge ourselves on it. We always want more, whether it's tactile, emotional, or sexual, and I think that's bad. Then why'd you wear that dress? Sorry? That dress, it's very stimulating. And it's red. You know what Freud would have said about that dress. And he would have been right. I admit it. I live in a highly excited state of overstimulation. Listen, I'd really like to take you out to dinner tonight. I know what this is from. It's from this SpongeBob SquarePants movie. <laughs> wow, really? I'm that obvious? It's still a good line. Oh, are you serious? I was joking. You're not serious. Yeah. No, that's from SpongeBob. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> Diggis, he almost yeah. got me. I was on. I was on the verge of. of Believing him. I, me too. I, 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 was on the, I was on the same verge. <laughs> it's brain scan. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, was, I didn't believe you on that. I was about to. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Okay, go ahead. Well, that was like one and a half trolls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're weird for not getting this one, Tom. Actually. Uh, I'm gonna do another line. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Well, obviously, Videodrome. Yeah. Oh, I was joking. <laughs> I don't I, – Kelly Wand, I don't know a lot of early David Cronenberg until you get me to watch it. Like you got me to watch the Rape Slugs one. Uh, you you might haven't have, seen Videodrome? Not, probably not. No, actually not since I was a huge Blondie fan and the movie came out. And I was like, I want to see whatever this horror movie is with Deborah Harry. That's yeah. the last time I would have seen Videodrome. And? Uh, I think I probably didn't get it. <laughs> why, why isn't she singing Heart of Glass? What's going on? Got any porno? You serious? Yeah, it gets me in the mood. What's this? Videodrome? Torture? Murder? Sounds great. Ain't exactly sex. Says who? Come on, Tom. Go watch it again. So you're saying I should see video. Okay, it's better than the rape slug one. Mm, yeah. Well, so I like ex- the rape slug one. Explain the cancer then in it. What's the? How does it yeah. use cancer? Videodrome, uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but a dude named Barry Convex uh, is uh, making assassins by giving them cancer and then by making them watch this video that gives them brain cancer. But it also gives them superpowers that lets them uh, shoot people and turn guns into like like robot arms. It's It's sounding very scanners. Yeah. But there's a cancer theme, so it's different. Yeah. Instead of telekinesis, it's cancer. So. You expect me instead to do that? Yeah. Instead of the head exploding, it's the stomach exploding. You know what? I, to be fair, it's I would like to see David Cronenberg body dysmorphia uh, applied to cancer. I mean, there's something about there's something cancerous about the gross stuff he does to bodies. 
whether it's the fly or the rape slugs. And it's also yeah. one of those movies where it's supposed to be about cutting edge tech, and it's all like TV and Betamax right. and fucking cable. And there's a whole thing about it. There's a little bit of the John Carpenter uh, evil homeless thing going oh, on. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Prince of Darkness. Yeah, but they're being brainwashed basically at these like home homeless shelters, but they're being made to watch. They, they give them TV instead of soup. To be fair, Kelly Wan, you don't have to twist my arm very hard to get me to watch an old crappy horror movie. So I'm on board. I'll check it out. There's a Harold Ramis character works with. No, okay. I'm sold. I'm sold. All right. There's All a right. character named Brian Oblivion. Mm, okay, now I'm no longer interested. That's way too obvious. I'm out. I'm out. Okay. <laughs> this is said too much. Uh, my favorite movie that's not about cancer but that uses cancer is a different movie featuring <laughs> Rachel Weiss in a bathtub. Yep. Oh, great one. Yeah. So, why you would think I would pick? So, uh, the but it's fountain, about cancer, though. Um, it. I don't. Th- the fountain is about death. So the fountain is I'm about. I'm pulling you over. Oh my God! Are you seriously going to pull yeah. me up? No, you don't can't. play the cancer card either. <laughs> I'm spending the last six months in solitude. We might both yeah. pull you over. Yeah. Wait a minute. It's it's about it's about uh it's about a guy who denies death and the death in this particular instance in one of three instances, by the way. Like you can't tell me that Space Tommy and Conquistador Tommy, those aren't storylines about cancer. I mean, they are as metaphors, but but the the modern day Tommy story is you know Rachel Weiss's character has cancer and and he is a researcher trying to find an experimental drug that will shrink tumors. Um, that's so. That's the plot of the movie. Oh my god! But it's one third of the movie. You think the Dingus. No, Think it's not. no, no. It's, Kelly that's won. the main thread, though. That's no, like the main spine. I can, of all I can solve spines. this. I can solve this, Kelly Wand. <laughs> Kelly Wand, do you think the fountain is about cancer? Somewhat. Well, then that. <laughs> okay. So, yes, it is. You know what else is somewhat about cancer? Videodrome, Fight Club, and uh, the kids in the hall. Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Right. Mm, no, but it's a major thread of the movie. It's a major plot point. It's a the same with Constantine. Point. The same with video. A major character. No, that's different. You're seriously trying to pull me over. Dingus. You know what? I'm, there's going to be there's a there's a high speed freeway chase right now because I'm not pulling over. <laughs> Dingus, I need some. I'm calling for backup. I am. I'm, I'm not going to be able to uh, help you with this because Fountain was uh, one of my last two picks too. Um, I think it's then, more of a movie about writing, and I think that it's more of a movie about creativity than it is about cancer. Uh, uh, this is way worse than help. You can't yep. catch me. I'm going way faster than you. I'm leaving you in the dirt. You can't. Well, Dingus, Dingus just hit my car and blew it up. So that's right. It's not going to help at all. He pit maneuvered you to help me. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. And I'm going to bring you into my basement now. John Goodman's family. Oh, Dingus, you made that's- it gross. Too soon. I it's made it gross. Dingus. Caught him on the leg. So here's here's a weird <laughs> uh, here's a weird thing about the fountain is I'm happy to just mention it and not because I I can't I don't you know I like experiencing the fountain and I'm I'm not even sure I can talk about it or even want to. Uh, so that's all I'm going to say is it just uses cancer oh. in, a, in a meaningful way. I I love watching it as a movie about death. Uh, and when you were basically told, look, dude, you got something that. For a lot of people, it means they're really going to die soon. Let's figure out what's going to happen. It's going to take many months, maybe a year, so go deal with that. As a guy who's been in that situation, watching The Fountain is hugely meaningful, and it already was hugely meaningful to me, but it just acquired this whole different level of, of, of depth and, and resonance. Um, 
What do you mean you don't want to talk about it? Well, I mean, it's not that I don't want to talk about it. I'm not sure I can verbalize what makes that movie so good. Yeah, it's almost right. like a 2001 yeah. kind of thing in that the like, analysis I, ruins it. Yeah, and I kind of think even Darren, Darren Aronofsky, I, I don't think he like. I think he like just accidentally created this amazing thing, and hearing not him try to talk about don't it. say it like that. Uh, I, Dingus, have you seen Noah? <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I have. Maybe he accidentally created something. Audio evidence that I have. Uh, I don't mean accidental. I guess I uh, I should say uh, created w- with some degree of something approximating divine inspiration over which he doesn't necessarily have control because he has also made a movie called Noah. He also made something called uh, There's a Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. And he's made a uh, Pi. Uh, what's I know there was something between. Uh, uh, the Fountain and Noah, wasn't there? Am I missing one? Oh, oh, uh, Black Swan. Right, right. But I'm just saying, there's something in The Fountain that I don't see in any of those other movies as much as I like them. And some of those other movies, one in specific, are terrible. Uh, but there, there's, there's... Right, the call, it looks like the call's dropped. Hold on. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back, Kelly Wand, to the quarter to three Sorry. movie podcast. Thank right, God. Sorry, the, the call is dropped. Good. Well, what, what happened is I just pulled so far ahead of you, you trying to pull me over, that the call dropped. So, right. yeah, there you go. You, Don Goodman's car, driven by Dingus, hit me. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying, Dingus, yeah, is that I, I, can, I can try to articulate things about the fountain, but I kind of don't feel the need to. Uh, right. And, sure. I, you know, I would if, like, I was – sitting and having a beer with folks, and they're like, let's talk about The Fountain. Uh, so we could talk about it, but I think we all love it. We've talked about it plenty of times on the podcast. Uh, uh, so that's like, limitations. It's like bringing up Jaws in a 3x3. Three three. We don't need to talk about it more. People know. <laughs> all, right, let's get, all right, let's get to the listeners. The let's listeners go. have said... Uh, Nick D chooses as his number three. It's a great one. Uh, Tom Cruise's father in Magnolia, played by Jason Robards, is dying of cancer, and in a late scene, Cruise visits his father's bedside. He's furious at his father for a, a variety of reasons, and yet can't help himself from breaking down in tears. To me, this scene is the perfect encapsulation of the operatic emotions of the movie overall. Dingus, I think this one is for you. Nick D's number two, clear and present danger. Does that mean anything to you? Like, do you know what Nick is getting at? That's the drug one. Yeah, go ahead. James Earl Jones plays a CIA director. He's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer of an aggressive nature. Mm-hmm. With the CIA director out of the picture, Jack Ryan suddenly has to get involved in machinations, machinations? stuff, uh, which he normally <laughs> wouldn't have to deal with. James Earl Jones has many great scenes in the hospital, joking around as he deals with the nurses, and then later when he's sicker, some wonderful quiet scenes with Dwayne, uh, with Harrison Ford. Hmm. And number one, this is for both you and Kelly Wand, Angus, hmm. Fight Club. Before hmm. founding Fight Club, the narrator finds an outlet for his feelings of emasculation at support groups for various forms of cancer, including testicular cancer. My favorite moment, however, is not at the men's support group, but in another group where a female cancer patient begs for emotional support from the group, followed by awkward silence. He doesn't seem to realize that her name is Chloe. Right. Hmm. Uh, and uh, actually, Nick wants to know, do we feel that Fight Club is mocking these support groups? And I, I think we did talk about, like, there it is, gallows humor. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, and I don't, by the way, I would say I don't systems. feel that it's, I don't feel that it's, uh, oh, look at this. Well, let me, I don't feel that it's mocking it so much as it, it's, it's, um, pointing. DSX mocking it. No, so much as it's, I, I, I think, poking at the human inability to experience empathy without it being kickstarted. Like, that, that some people are just so closed off that they don't have a natural sense for empathy, and they, they basically, uh, like, like the characters in the movie, they have to artificially find it and create it. Right. Uh, I think it's creating yeah. this, this sense of the characters being cut off from their humanity in a way. He's uh, also using this as a way to help them sleep. Right, right. So, yeah, the same way someone yeah. might pop an aspirin or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Nick D's runner-up says, he says, the fountain, though I'm sure it's been chosen by now. Kelly Warren, are you going to throw Nick D in jail? Well, if it was up to me, we'd put them all behind bars and build a wall against the nation. And mm-hmm. uh, you're, All right, you're all out. It's fine. <laughs> Arthur Giovanginelli writes, Watchmen. Throwing my badge in the ocean. A nefarious scheme gives the friends of John Osterman, a.k.a. Dr. Manhattan, cancer. This was designed to physiologically damage Dr. Manhattan and contributes to his decision to leave Earth. What? The plot also turns the public against him by exploiting fears of radiation and nuclear weapons. I don't remember that. Wait a minute. I thought his girlfriend or something had cancer from him. But but no, and that that and it was a trick. Like he, they didn't really give it, or he didn't really give it to her. But they were just doing that to mess with them. You know, all I remember is that there's no that there's no giant squid. <laughs> Arthur's number two pick is the guard. Is it the Irishman? Jerry Boyle's mother is dying from cancer. I think it was brain cancer, but I don't remember. And staying at a facility with doctors that Boyle doesn't like. He visits her throughout the movie and struggles with how sick she is. The last night they have together is spent in a pub listening to a live musical performance. It's a great scene. It left me very misty. Is that the Brendan Gleeson thing where he's an Irish cop? I think so, yeah. I don't remember that. I don't either. Uh, And Arthur's number one pick is Magnolia. Game show host Jimmy Gator, played by Philip Baker Hall, is diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer. This grave news causes him to try to reconnect with his daughter. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, There are several – oh, I forgot about that. That's the other cancer in there, of course. Uh, there are several different scenes of Hall telling people he will soon die of cancer, and Hall is brilliant in each one. My personal favorite is when he breaks the news to his co-workers, saying, It's in my bones. I don't have a chance. Mm. Yeah, I do remember that. Grant Stewart titles his, his email Big C times three. Uh, he says he only managed two, however, and that they've both been scooped. So I guess it should be Big C times two. What? Yeah. Uh, he says, firstly, my two picks are Izzy Creo. Do you know what that's from, Kelly Wand? Mm, was he one of Rocky's opponents? A little movie a little movie called <laughs> The Fountain. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh, right, Creo. And Meryl, Meryl Streep's Skeleton, <laughs> who begs for sex in Fight Club. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I can see that. Is uh, the actress uh, that you know who played her... So the the actor, uh, an old friend of mine from Arkansas, is an actor in Chicago. He was actually the priest in the super, the last Superman movie that we saw, where there's that whole clumsy bit about like Superman and God. Uh, he was an actor in Chicago, and he knew the woman who played Chloe, who was also an actress in Chicago. So I'd never met her. It was like a friend of a friend thing. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Grant Stewart has a question. Um, 
Oh, he wants to know. Okay, so he's trolling me first. He wants to know what a non-faked physical gesture is. You need no, look no further than Alec Guinness in Star Wars for that. Uh, and he said, I've made several references to my viewpoint on the ending of Birth, but I've never elaborated on what it might be. He wants me to enlighten the listeners. Uh, all right, so if you haven't seen Birth and you don't want to hear spoilers, fast forward about uh, 20 seconds. Uh, Birth is a movie where a little boy claims to be the dead husband – to be the reincarnated dead husband of Nicole Kidman. Uh, later in the movie, he recants. He says, no, I made that up. It's not true. That is a lie. If I think the, the textual – the intent of birth – and you can verify this with – there's evidence in the movie. Uh, the movie is in a way it's, – it's a great drama, but in a way it's a bit of a puzzle also. I think there's incontrovertible proof in the movie that he is indeed the reincarnated husband of Nicole Kidman. Uh, so some people can come away from that movie and say it's ambiguous, and I think I might have used this before to talk about the difference between uh, subtlety and ambiguity. I don't feel there's any ambiguity in birth. I feel that it's clearly about he is indeed uh, the reincarnated Sean, the reincarnated husband of Nicole Kidman. And one person, by the way, who I know has my back on this, a little fellow named Dingus. Yep, uh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. All right, so welcome back. We just spoiled birth. I hope you missed that in case you haven't seen it. I hope you see birth. Please see birth. Robert Perry Cruz says he has a hard time thinking of options that didn't feel like movies using cancer as a cheap way to tug at heartstrings. So he says he enlisted his wife's help. By the way, it's always fair. You guys sending in three by three picks, you're welcome to get help. You know, we don't mind uh, if you consult other sources. His runner up, <laughs> do that. He sent in four. Uh, Brian's song. Right. Wait, that's about cancer. I, yeah, I think so. My son actually called this one out from the back seat. Oh, so he got his son. I don't, uh, Robert, that's I don't, too much. Oh, his yeah, son I don't know. is Brian's song? Yeah, I don't know how old your son is. That is a weird one. Every kid knows Brian's song. Maybe his son's name is Brian and he was singing. Well, Rob says he's never seen the movie, but it was listed in one of his son's football books. What? All right, so this is what happens when, he, when you sanction people getting help. Yeah, okay, good point. I take that back. No more getting help. Rob, we're, we're issuing you uh, – it's a misdemeanor. Uh, so Brian's it's just, song is a misdemeanor. So uh, Rob's number three pick is Fight Club. He mentions the support groups. Uh, he mentions uh, Chloe. Yep. Uh, this poor skeletal woman inches closer and closer to the microphone to advertise the various sensual oils and lubricants she would bring along. He says it's humorous in its tragedy or it's tragic in its humor, which is an interesting way to put it. Yeah, it's good. Uh, oh, wow. Here we go. Nobody, I, don't, I doubt anyone's seen this movie, though. Rob mentions Igby Goes Down. Oh, wow. He says, my wife immediately remembered Susan Sarandon as the overbearing mother Mimi in this film. Faced with terminal breast cancer, she has her sons poison her food as a form of assisted suicide. As the last act of a woman who demanded so much control over the people in her life, her decision to schedule her own death was both true to the character and a sad revelation about how little control we really have in our own lives. Hmm. Uh, and he says she's way better, Sarandon's way better in Igby Goes Down than she is in Stepmom. Oh, yeah, stepmom uh, is something I avoided. Uh, I saw it on a plane. Haha, you saw stepmom. Rob's mm -hmm. number one pick. Thank you for smoking. When oh, when Sam Elliott's Marlboro Man character is diagnosed with lung cancer, he turns into an anti-cigarette crusader. 
Aaron Eckhart is Big Tobacco's PR hotshot, pays him a visit with a suitcase full of money to buy his silence. The way Eckhart preys upon Elliot's desperation in the face of mounting medical bills and the future of his family, because if Elliot goes to the press to decry this attempt to buy his silence, he would undoubtedly have to donate the money. It reflects the cost cancer takes on every aspect of a person's life. Hmm. Dave Perkins, who I see here has sent in two emails. I'll be curious to see what he does in the second one. Uh, he says, um, first of all, by the way, you guys, some of you are sending in uh, uh, well wishes. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. I, I won't read them over the air, but I do see these. I appreciate that. He says, Dave Perkins, three examples of the word cancer being whispered in movies. He wanted three examples, but he can only find two. <laughs> Brighton Beach Memoirs and St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, yeah, I remember the first one. Ha ha, you saw St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, and then he follows up by saying because he couldn't think of a third whispered cancer, he submits his favorite cancer moment. The, oh, my God. Dave Perkins has just pwned all of us, you guys. Hmm. Dadgummit. Hmm. We need to back up and re-record this. All right. I was thinking that anyway. All right. Dave Perkins says the final phone call in a serious man delivers the ominous news immediately uh, after the great change from F to C. And Dave Perkins points out F, faith, C, cancer. Uh, I know the word cancer isn't used. Well, it doesn't need to be. Uh, but the scene is full of clues like the grade being C minus, the student's name starting with C. Uh, no, of course. I mean, and, and just the doctor saying, uh, I'd like you to come in and talk about your x-rays. And he says, okay, yeah. when? And the doctor's like, now. Uh, I've cleared some some time. I think we should talk now. Like, just the way, the tone in his voice. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. that you used that analogy about weather earlier, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, Dingus, yeah. Yeah. I didn't get F to C. That's pretty cool. Uh, smart. Fire <laughs> writes, uh, her grandmother is 89 and narrated a list to her in Russian. So this is from Fire's 89-year-old grandmother. Her number two pick, uh, Love Story from 1970. He's from a rich family, and she's very beautiful. They fall in love against his parents' wishes. She supports him at home while he makes it big in his career. Eventually, he buys a big flat on Fifth Avenue and carries her over the threshold in his arms, and she says, take me to the hospital. I feel sick. He throws money at the situation by ordering the best doctors and the best medical care, but she still dies. No. Oh. Uh, and then uh, Fire's 89-year-old grandmother picked a movie from 2008 called Elegy. I don't know this one. Uh, according to Fire's grandmother – Penelope Cruz has an ill-fated love affair with her teacher with commitment issues. In the breakup scene, she comes to ask him she comes to him to ask him to photograph her. He photographs her face from all sides. She slides off her blouse and says, "Photograph these two. They're cutting them off tomorrow." Uh. Oh my god. Wow, fire. That's uh, that must have been quite the session with your grandmother. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then she sends in her own three. Number one, uh, when my friend was going through cancer treatment, I saw Mood Indigo. Audrey Tattoo plays Chloe, and mm -hmm. Romaine Dury plays her lover, Colin. Their love is wacky and sweet and sincere. One day on vacation, Chloe inhales a seed. It seems so innocuous at the time, but day after day she feels sicker and weaker. Soon the seed grows into a large flower growing in her lung. 
So in addition to having the lung removed, she undergoes difficult treatments that leave her weak. After she heals, she gets the same kind of illness in her other lung. Doctors say, say she will not survive. Colin does everything he can think of to get Chloe the treatment she needs. In the end, he suffers financial ruin in his desperate attempts to save her, and his world literally collapses on him. So she says it's kind of a stretch and asks not to be pulled over. I cannot imagine her being pulled over for that. That's no, weird. no. She, she can drive on. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, she talks about how deeply that movie affected her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so uh, runners-up. I think no. there's – aren't there more listener things? Uh, refresh this. No, not that I'm seeing. Oh, shoot. Shoot a monkey. Look at all these dingus. What? Oh, they're all under the Cloverfield email. Yeah, oh sorry gosh. about that. No, no, no. Actually, I didn't. I just look at the last red one and then look above it. And James Miller says he wanted to add his picks to the conversation. Hopefully, he can class up the joint a little, as he won't be picking sanctimonious horseshit like Patch Adams. That's James oh, Miller, by the way. Not, not me cussing. Hmm. Uh, James Miller first in Bergman's Cries and Whispers. Siblings hmm. gather when one of them reveals they have cancer. As death and mortality loom, secrets and lies bubble to the surface. That yeah. makes me think of the movie's uh, Celebration. Do you guys know the Danish movie? Celebration? Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, James picks Magnolia, uh, one of the best story threads in this, quote, tapestry film, he calls it, is Jason Robards. Uh, this movie also features one of Kelly's favorite tropes about a movie set in one day. Mm. And singing, my other favorite. Uh, and so, so even though I'm reluctant, not reluctant, I love hearing other people talk about the fountain. So James writes, uh, in the fountain, the 2005 iteration of the protagonist is searching for a cure for his wife's cancer, finding it in a tree in Central America, effectively linking the 1505 and 2505 timelines together as mortal men take from the fountain of youth and are effectively immolated for their hubris. I didn't know there was a 2505. I didn't know the timeline was like yeah, it's 1505, 500, 500. 2005. Is that in the movie? Yeah. It's How a thousand-year tale. Uh, do, I think because in the trailer they go, it covers a thousand years. Well, that trailer's not a movie, Kelly Wand. <laughs> no, it's in the movie somewhere. <laughs> I don't think I don't it's know. like that at all. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that's like that's like the marketing of Cloverfield. Like that's stuff out from outside the movie. Uh, I forget how I know this, but it's in the movie. Like I counted the rings or something. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tattoos tree? on his arm. The, he's got the tattoos on his arm, and at one point he talks about those. But no, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Kelly Wand, and say I will give you a dollar if you can find any internal support in the movie for the years being 1505, 2005, and 2505. The tough one will be future. It's a dollar. But... There's a dollar on this, Kelly Wand. What about just thematic coherence? I, I'm looking for dates and math. If you can't, if you can't provide that, you're not getting a dollar. <laughs> Bogey writes, this is B-O-G-I, I love that. Uh, his subject header is the first rule of cancer is you don't talk about cancer. His number three pick, uh, Harvey Picard in American Splendor. Good one. The rave reviews from the graphic novel Our Cancer Year by Harvey Picard and his wife Joyce are well documented in this movie about ev- the everyman comic book writer, and his battle with the cancer that threatened to take it all away. Uh, another Fight Club one. Uh, because her, because of her, Cornelius can't cry and can't sleep and loses his penguin spirit animal to boot. 
until he finds a new support group. Cornelius. Yeah, that's what he putting that in quotes. His... Oh, right. Very good. Yes. Okay. That threw me. He 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 does like Cornelius and roll. There's a couple different ones that he puts, and okay. until she finally says, well, "Who are you? What's your name, Cornelius? What?" And he, of course, doesn't answer it because we don't know. Right. And she's standing in the middle of the road at that time. Uh, Bogey's number one pick, uh, Phil Parma in Magnolia. Philip Seymour Hoffman exclaims, oh, there are frogs falling from the sky, as it occurs all across the storylines. It causes a father dying of brain cancer and lung cancer to wake to the noise and see his son for the last time and not just die alone with a life of regret. (laughs) There's this great thing that happened where uh, my kid did this thing called uh, Odyssey of the Mind, um, which is this uh, this this competition, this competition where they have to solve a bunch of uh, problems. Um, and one of the problems they had to solve was making a weather change. And they decided that their weather change was going to be frogs falling from the sky. <laughs> and all I could think of was, this happens, this happens. Uh uh, someone named Ake, A-I-K, writes an awesome email and asked me not to read it, uh, but partly because uh, he or she chose me and Earl and the Dying Girl, uh, which, yeah, it's, it's about cancer, I believe. Uh, but Ake, thank you so much for that awesome email. Uh, it's just a very supportive, uh, w- uh, fond wishes. Chris Markinson, uh he says it was a tough one. He's writing it. Uh, he's Oh, okay. I, I hope you don't mind me reading this, Chris. Uh He's writing this. Uh, it's been two years and six days since his grandfather passed away due to cancer. He beat it in his 50s, uh, prostate cancer, and then bowel cancer and the heart defect that killed John Ritter in his 70s. So at any rate, he kicked cancer's ass a couple of times, uh, but it, at the age of 89, it finally got him. Sorry to hear that, Chris. So uh, Chris's three picks, Watchmen. Oh, I guess he's reiterating what uh, – was it Nick D who said that? There are more than a couple of movies the bad guys might do something to give someone cancer because that person or persons have gotten close to a conspiracy. I don't know if I've ever seen a movie where people were given cancer in order to try and destabilize a third party. While horrific, Ozymandias' plan to make Dr. Manhattan think that he had given cancer to those he was closest to was rather clever. Uh, The narrator attending a support group for testicular cancer in Fight Club. Uh, says to poor Chloe, I want ascending bowel cancer. Uh, wait, I'm reading this wrong. From the narrator attending a support group for testicular cancer to poor Chloe dying of cancer and not being able to find anyone to have sex with, Bike Club handles cancer differently than any other movie I can remember. Yep. And then, oh, geez, Chris, once again, another great pick that you jokers wouldn't know about because you won't see movies, I tell you to see. Uh, The quote is, can I ride my horse, which is great, but you guys won't know it because you haven't seen the movie. In Wild, during a flashback, Laura Dern's character is diagnosed with cancer. While Reese Witherspoon's character responds with how long, Laura Dern's character asks, can I ride my horse? It's hard to describe, but there's just something about that scene that felt really poignant to me. She is so good in that. I mean, Laura Dern is so great, but you know what? If you like Laura Dern... You need to kick yourself if you haven't seen Wild by now. And that's not just you two jokers on the podcast. Paul Weimer uh, says, number three, in Creed. What? Thanks for ruining Creed for me, Paul Weimer. <laughs> uh, well, I just found out that Rocky gets lymphoma in Creed, guys. What do you think of that? Uh, you didn't uh, see it? No, I still haven't gotten around to seeing it. I need to. 
Uh, Paul Weimer's number two pick, Terms of Endearment. He says, a movie I expect will be on a lot of responses this week. Emma's death hits me hard. I just can't say any more about it. Is it Terms of Endearment about cancer, or am I misremembering it? Yeah. yeah. Is that it's the one where... creativity, though, according to Dingus and it, family. Is that the mm, one where Jack thanks, Nicholson yeah. is an astronaut? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, oh, I, I suspect Dingus will and like this one. John Lithgow pl- pays for groceries. Oh, that was like the. Or that was like everybody was like, "Hey, this John Lithgow guy is great, right?" Like, wasn't that? Yeah. Didn't he actually get nominated for an Academy Award or something? No, no. Lithgow. Does Jack he cro- Does he cross dress yeah. in that movie? Or am I thinking of oh, something else? Oh, oh, yeah, World According to Garb. Yeah. yeah, very good, Kelly Wand. Uh, Paul Weimer's number one pick. In contact, S.R. Haddon moves to the space station mirror because of the cancer that, as he put it, is, quote, eating him alive. It's made pretty plain that he's had it for some time, and part of the reason why he's been funding and supporting Ellie's efforts with deciphering the message is to do one final act on behalf of humanity. Wow. The scene of his coffin being co-signed to the deep of space after he dies is touching and moving. It's John Hurt, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. I forgot that. Is is uh, anyway? Go ahead. Uh, Jacob Crawford, uh, who's a first-time contributor. Thank you, Jacob. We'll see more of your name, please. Uh, okay, here's one I thought we would have hear- heard. Uh, I'm not going to read the exchange because I can't do uh, Royal Tenenbaums justice. But he gives us a nice section of dialogue. <laughs> oh, you know what? I have to read it. Uh, Pagoda says he has cancer. Henry Sherman. Uh, okay, I should just say Pagoda says he has cancer. He has the cancer, doesn't he? Ah, very good, Dingus. Mm. Uh, and then Danny Glover says, no, he doesn't. I know what stomach cam- cancer looks like. I've seen it. And you don't eat three cheeseburgers a day and fridge fries if you've got it. The pain <laughs> is excruciating. To which Gene Hackman says, how would you know? And Danny Glover says, do you guys remember this? Yeah, yeah, I definitely do, yeah. He says, my wife had it. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, good pick, Jacob. Uh, Jacob writes, a Wes Anderson movie mentioned in a 3x3 three three is crazy, I know. I like how this chain exchange instantly humanizes Henry, that's Danny Glover, and explains some of his resentment towards and suspicious of Royal. Great pick. I really love this pick because uh, I had this idea of going with people pretending to have cancer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? I'm going to read this even though I... I can't do these quotes justice. Uh, my f- quote, my father died. They said his body was riddled with cancer and that he didn't know. He went in because his finger hurt. They said he suffered horribly and that he called out for me before he died. They said he said he regretted his life. They said he said a lot of things, too many to recount. And they said it was the longest and the saddest deathbed speech any of them have ever heard. Uh And then Jacob writes, about three years ago, my dad went to the doctor for a nagging headache. He was eventually diagnosed with stage four lung cancer that was found to have spread throughout his entire body. He passed away a month after being diagnosed. For some reason, this experience has made these lines delivered immediately after Philip Seymour Hoffman receives a phone call in Synecdoche, New York, even more humorous than when I originally saw the movie. The -the over-the-top description of the horrible death of Philip Seymour Hoffman's father rendered in a perfect monotone, is pitch black, devastating, and a good summation of people's worst fears about death, and especially the death of a parent. Which just reminds me, I really need to see Synecdoche again. Uh, wow. Yeah. Damn it. 
oh, Jacob, well, look what he just did. And Jacob, by the way, I approve of this. A lot of people judge this movie based on the sequels, which I feel is unfair. Uh, I'm going to read this. Someone named – oh, my God. Someone named Dr. Lawrence Gordon says, okay, this patient has an inoperable frontal lobe tumor extending across the midline, started as colon cancer. The patient had come in for a standard checkup, which we were able to monitor the rate at which his condition is declining. The patient has – and then someone named Zepp Hindle interrupts him with – his name is John, Dr. Gordon. He's a very interesting person. This, Jacob writes, is from the first Saw. Although I don't love this movie or any movie in the series, I find it truly impressive that Jigsaw's reaction to his terminal cancer diagnosis was the setup to the plots of all seven movies in the series. (laughs) Wow, what? I had no idea. That's longer than Breaking Bad. Uh, and the actor, I forget what his name is. He's a like a, he's a recognizable character actor, but the guy they have played Jigsaw just, I mean that that must have been a fantastic gravy train for him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And when they first told him about the party, he was like, "Well, that'll be a quick weekend." <laughs> right. Exactly. Try to look as frail as possible, man. Well, so that's two Danny Glovers, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There you go. What's that known as in sports? <laughs> Uh, all right, runners up, gentlemen. What do you got? Uh, I had I had um, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, but I think that's it. So I rewatched for this podcast because I was sure I was going to pick this one. Uh, unfortunately, I, I hadn't seen it since uh, since my own situation, so I remembered it a little too fondly. Uh, but it's so trite and annoying. Uh, there is a terrible, terrible, terrible. I don't understand people who like this, and they're out there movie by Robert Zemeckis called Flight. Um, I've never seen that, and I've always been sort that's of curious Jody, about it. Is that a Jodie Foster one? No, it's no, Denzel, Denzel Washington as a, as, a, yeah, as a drunk pilot. Pilot who does something awesome and gets in trouble. You know, you say awesome, but it, it, it is so laughably absurd, that whole flight drama crisis slash crash. I want to see him do it and then and then see if you're right. Doesn't it is ridiculous. Yeah. So to keep it from crashing, he flies it upside down because right. they're 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 in a dive and he can't pull out of the dive. So his solution and this is like you know it's like a seven thirty. It's like a it's like a regular passenger jet. His solution is because work? because they're in a permanent dive is to turn it upside down. Yeah. And then get it to keep diving, <laughs> because if you turn upside down when you're diving, the plane goes up. You see. Oh, okay, I see. And and there's no, no way. And, yeah, it's that. ridiculous. Well, no one thought of it because you can't subject. They were all sober, and it took the alky. I got it. Because you can't subject a passenger jet to those kind of forces. Like it does. It's not built that way. No, it would right, so come apart. Yeah, it would totally come apart, and and he's just flipping like, it. And the thing is, he turns it upside down long enough for it to get a thousand feet over the ground, and then he flips yeah. it back over again and sets it down like gently in a field. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Hmm. Uh, so he acts like it's a jet fighter, but it's totally different kind of. The yeah, movie is the just, just yeah. The movie has no concept of how airplanes work, and, and I guess if you know, maybe it's one of those things where like people who know computers and watch. Hackers in a movie do something it's stupid. It's the kind of thing where if it was like a based on a true story, you'd go, "Well, shit," you know. But then the fact that they just make it up and then he just like does like it should have just been five uh, whirly gigs. What do you the call problem it? with flight? I don't five whirly gigs. The, the problem with flight isn't the, 
isn't just this ridiculous like setup because this is just a setup. Flight then becomes about a legal case, right? No, about a drunk. It's a drunks are tedious movie. It's a movie oh, about really? oh my god, he can't stop drinking. Oh, what is he gonna do? Oh, and in the end, he well, okay, at the, at the you know, and it's got so much redemption at the end, Kelly Wan. You would barf. It's like Zemeckis. Like in Castaway, where you're like, oh, it's an adventure tale, and he's got to dodge plane propellers and survive starvation, and then it's like Helen Hunt gives him a truck. And you're like, uh. The adventure stuff, no. Uh-uh. So, Kelly Wan, let's say you have a movie and you want to cast someone to be a heroin junkie, to be a counterpart to him as an alcoholic, like a woman who he connects with because she's so into shooting up heroin that it's really Grace. Uh, uh, Kelly Riley. You know, she has like super hot redhead. She looks like a model. She's a beautiful woman, and she's supposed to be like like this down on her look, just ragged heroin junkie. No, she's super hot. Doesn't work. Uh, So at any rate, cool. I want to watch it now. Thank you. Have fun. There's a scene that I remembered being intriguing, uh, where Denzel's in the hospital after the 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 wreck. Kelly Riley, who we've met before, we don't know what the connection is. She's also in the same hospital because she OD'd. He goes out into the stairwell to smoke a cigarette, and she's out there smoking a cigarette. So this is how they meet, uh, and then their relationship is part of the movie. And while they're there smoking cigarettes and having a connection, down from the bottom of the stairwell, James Badge Dale, with his head shaved, comes walking up holding one of those IV things with the wheels on the bottom, one of those racks, and he's in a hospital gown. He comes walking up from the bottom of the stairwell, and he comes across them, and it's almost like the part in a Shakespeare play when a clown comes out. <laughs> He's this like super talkative, chatty, uh, kind of funny character who's dispensing his near-death wisdom because he's terminally uh, – he's got a terminal diagnosis, uh, and, and he asks for cigarettes, and he's smoking with this like crazy smoking affectation that the actor decided to do. Um, it's fascinating to watch. But it is so glib and ridiculous and uh, j- just like flashy, showy. Hey, you have cancer and you acquire super preternatural wisdom and you try to impart it on people. But nope, they're drunks and addicts and they can't see it yet. Uh, it's just – it's ridiculous. But I love James Badge Dale. So I love watching him hmm. given this material. I presume he knows how terrible it is. But he commits and he tries and it's, it's a respectable attempt but a horrible scene. Wait, so you can smoke cigarettes? Oh, wait, yeah, you can smoke cigarettes at AA, right? Yeah, that's the joke. Is that AA is yeah, AA is full of people smoking cigarettes, right? But then, can you drink at like a chic center? When I was diagnosed, Kelly Wand, uh, one of the things they do for you is they, uh, for, for me at least, they they gave me a dietitian, and because I was going to have trouble eating. Her whole objective was to get me to eat a certain amount of protein every day, uh, and she knew it was going to be difficult. Uh, the idea was if I couldn't do it, I would have to get a stomach tube to take my uh, nutrients uh, like through, through, through liquids poured into my stomach. Uh, but what this great dietitian would do is she would give me all these dietary tips, and one of the things she kept hitting on over and over, because I know she had trouble with other people. This wasn't an issue for me. She would say – not a drop of alcohol. <laughs> that was like that was like almost a mantra that every time I went to meet with her, tell her how much I'd eaten, you know, she'd tell me again, not a drop of alcohol. Because I could imagine there were people who were, were drinking anyway. You know, that's if you if you use alcohol to 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 medicate yourself, what time you know, what 
what what better time to medicate yourself than if you've got this terrible illness? So I imagine that was quite a chore for her. But uh, then you'd throw up the protein that you worked so hard to get in, maybe. Like, wouldn't that fuck up? The, no, but it, it was great to hear her say the words, not a drop. Not a drop yeah, of alcohol. Yeah. And actually, Kelly Wand, I, uh, it's, I, I, this is weird detail I'll just throw out here. Uh, the, the stereotype, I think, is that when you're getting chemo and radiation, you get nausea and you throw up a lot. And certainly, the chemo that I was given, they used to put people in the hospital while they were getting the chemo for days at a time because it would cause just relentless nausea and vomiting. Uh, my oncologist said, you know, we just put people in beds, there's a bucket. I mean, he didn't say we, meaning him personally, but the medical industry. Put people in beds, there's buckets. They just vomit uncontrollably for days on end. It's like that dire. Uh, and this is what I was being given. But these days, I was also given this overlapping regimen of anti-nausea medications. Like I would take one that has a certain strength, and then a, a certain time later, I would take one to overlap it, and then I would take a third one to bridge me to the gap before I could take the other one a third time. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I didn't hurl. I, I hurled very few times in, in the process for me because that's one mm. of the things I was thinking too. Is yeah, you vomit a lot when you get cancer and you're getting treatment. So those things work for the anti-nausea. It's amazing, yeah. Like the weird thing is, you feel it. Like you know, oh my body is my body is nauseated, and this is really gross, and I feel awful. But you just don't vomit. I mean, you uh, know, it's it's like it's like when you get uh, anesthesia wait. for stitches or something. You can't feel the pain, but you feel the the thread pulling your flesh, or or like dental work, for instance. Yeah. Like you get numb there, and you feel the yanking around, and you feel like a something cutting your flesh. Like you feel it all, but you don't feel the pain response. It's this right. weird thing with these nausea suppressants. Uh, is it's like I know I'm nauseated, but I'm not throwing up. Uh, hmm. All right, so one final runner-up, uh, and this is again like flight. I hate this scene so much. Um, so my that that doctor I told you about that said, oh, you know, I, this is probably lymphoma. Every time I see this, it's lymphoma. That guy, uh, he was the exception to the rule. So many of the doctors are just. You know, they're, they're oncologists. They deal with this. They know it. They know how people respond. They know how to break the news. They, they, there's, there's this amazing empathy with a good oncologist, a good doctor. And I got very lucky for the most part. Uh, I saw a terrible movie with Mickey Rourke as a, as a CIA assassin. Uh, he's, re he's retired though. He's not doing it anymore. Uh, and he's just like living a normal life in the suburbs. And he lives next door to a, a young boy, like a, a high school student. The movie's about the high school student, and it's a dopey coming-of-age movie. It's terrible. But Mickey Rourke's character is diagnosed with, with terminal cancer. And the movie's about him becoming buddies with a high school student who's wanting to do a project where he interviews someone. And there's action and drama and heartwarming coming-of-age stuff. It's terrible. But we see a scene where Mickey Rourke goes in to get the results back from some tests and the doctor says uh, you have cancer, I'm sorry and Mickey Rourke who's supposed to be like super badass and he can take anything he's, he says to the doctor and he's totally like putting him down, he says to the doctor you're not sorry, you're just embarrassed <laughs> and I was like god what a dick I mean, yeah. and, and, and the, the movie was a dick too for, for presenting the doctor as a guy who's just like throwing out these platitudes and I just find so the problem with my ENT that that jerk he wasn't an oncologist he wasn't used to talking to people who had cancer he was used to talking to people who had earaches um, 
my experience, mm. people who are oncologists, who diagnose cancer, who break the news to patients, they know what they're doing, and it's terrible news to get, and they've had to do it enough times. It's not easy for them, but this movie just made it seem like doctors suck, and they're not really sorry. They're just embarrassed to have to say it. Uh, I think in movies, though, like if you're, it's about the main character, and so you want to like put obstacles, like you want all hands to be sort of against them to sort of get audience sympathy. So then you make the doctors extra stupid. Well, no, what it was really about, I mean, you're you're basically right, Kelly Wan. But what the scene was really about was to show you how badass and insightful Mickey Rourke was. You know, Uh, he he wasn't going to put up with platitudes. He was going to see right through them. You know, he knew what was going on in that doctor's head. Uh, Hmm. It was a terrible movie. All right, there we go, Dingus. What do you? A tough act to follow, maybe. What, what do you got for us for a three by three next week? <laughs> Thank you for gently uh, leading me into this. Yeah, it better be important, Dingus. We want something super important, super relevant. It better have like some serious social ramifications. What do you got? All right, these are your favorite knee injuries. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding you. Wait, um, I, I got some. I mean, I was yeah, into that. Please. I'm bu- I'm, I was bummed <laughs> instead I realized he was kidding. I was like, All right, oh, it's going on my list for things to yeah, pick me in the future. Yeah. I'm doing it, Maya. <laughs> Hold on, I got one left to go. Um, your favorite scavengers or scavenging? <laughs> That's even weirder. You know, Kelly Wan, you, you say it is, but I'm thinking of... Uh, Dingus, listen to this. I think that like the the video game trope I mentioned in Tim Cloverfield Lane, like where where she's like making the hazmat suit out of the Pepsi bottle in the shower curtain, like that kind of thing that we know from video games. Dingus won't have it touchstones for that, but right. we know that. Yeah, it's not like he's just seen that movie either. I'm not talking about crafting. Oh, Dingus, why else do you scavenge? You scavenge to get materials for crafting. Right. Yeah, you got to get bottle caps for your. Um, uh, do you need to? Dingus won't understand that reference to bottle caps, Kelly Wand. In the apocalypse, bottle caps are used for currency. You may not realize that. Oh, all right. Good thing Uh, I'm collecting them. Anything you're taking off the table, or do you need to tell us why or elaborate? (laughs) I don't think so. I I think just watching this movie, uh, watching Ten Cloverfield, made me think about uh, a couple things that we've seen uh, that were that had scavengers, um, and I decided to make it not just scavengers but scavenging uh, because I didn't want you to have to uh, just say uh, one character. Um, So, but I like I like uh, I like scavenging. I like that idea. Dingus, will you be taking any questions from Kelly Wand on this topic? No. Huh, Do textbooks that? count? Kelly Wand, he said no questions. Oh, I didn't hear him. Most he, can, he can throw them out. I'm just not going to take them. Uh, Kelly Wand, what movie should we see next week? What, what's come, what's, what movie is so big that it's even opening in Hamburg, Germany, where you live? Uh, the Witch is coming out in May. All right. So I look I forward to talking about it then. Until then. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this week we is also opening uh, Hail Caesar. Wait, that already came out. We already did a podcast on it. Yeah, uh, Zootopia is playing in German. Which We've been told, by the way, by fairly, I think, reliable enough sources. Yeah, We've been told I think to so. see Zootopia. Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you? Was how, it, how do you feel about that? Do you do you believe that we should see Zootopia, Kelly Wan? Is it by people who go to Disneyland a lot for fun? That's a good point. And about and and by kids who live with me. That's true, right? Right. Kids who appreciate good, who appreciate good, like 
superhero movies who see middling ones and realize they're middling. Yep. And who you guys like you, Deadpool? You should check out Zootopia. And who actually refused to see next week's superhero movie? Uh, Why? Yeah, he's he couldn't Why? care less. He's a Marvel kid. Dingus is raising him right. Why is he so smart? Why are we doing it? Well, so what is it we're doing, Kelly Wand? Let's let, I'm sure they have no idea what we're talking about. You better tell them, Kelly Wand, so they know what to see. We're be, yeah, see and watch as well uh, as we will. Um, Zack Snyder, visionary Jack, Zack Snyder, if you recall, visionary Zack Snyder's new vision: Batman versus Superman, Dawn of the Justice Leagues. Oh, it is called that, isn't it? Is it really? I thought Kelly was making that up. No, no, isn't it something like Dawn and Justice? Yeah. I think there is like a colon thing. Yeah, it's a, like this isn't just any old Batman versus Superman thing. This is a very specific one. Oh, Obviously, like... the title Batman versus Superman refers to them unifying to form a group. <laughs> <laughs> so that title really evokes like, imagery. Like Avengers Assemble, now yeah. we're going to fight. Batman versus Superman, the group. Yeah. By the way, I just found – well, I didn't just find out. So uh, Iron Man and Captain America are going to get in a fight. What? Well, Marvel Marvel guys always fight. That's but I, again, that's again – it's just like Batman or Superman. Like I know who's going to win that. There's no contest. You don't? Why? Because it's Cal- Captain America, the movie? Captain America can't beat a robot like a, a Tony Stark robot thing. He's- no, but Tony Stark will hold back, and Captain America is Bucky's friend. It's what always also the lesser – Wait, Kevin America's the Batman, you're saying? Yeah, he's, he's going to lose. Wow, this is a great... This <laughs> well, let's he's a super this. soldier, so he's... You know what, maybe maybe we'll have some data we can apply to this uh, next week, Kelly Wan, based on what Zack Snyder has to say about who would win in a fight between Batman and Superman. Also, Wonder Woman. Also, Spider-Man versus She-Lob. I can't for, wait for that. Uh, Dingus, I like where you're going. I like that. All right, so there you go. Uh, three by three, your favorite scavenging or scavengers, uh, and see Batman versus Superman: Dawn of the Justice League of America. Uh, <laughs> 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 I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Mifflitsky. It's Christian Moroski. <laughs> and making those noises, we had Kelly Wan. Wikipedia is backing me up on this thousand-year fountain shit. Tiffany was in a movie I mentioned last night. Tiffany was in a movie? Yeah. One of those shark, like, uh, shark, like, shark versus volcano things, right? Yeah, like 3D piranha versus the aircraft carrier movie. One I'm of those. Check that out. I had, I, to, like I, had to, I had to do that for you guys as weird, one of your weird, uh, three by threes that I couldn't participate in. Three best movies. Uh, how, how was she as an actress, Dingus? Awesome. She was much better than, uh, Debbie Gibson. Ah, uh, so rude. La 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 la. Also, a bottle of scotch is totally could be used as a uh, Molotov cocktail. Oh. Hey, um, Rocky and Bullwinkle's a major parabo, right? I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years 
We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! Now, that was a great example of teamwork. Always puts me in the mood. Hmm. No idea what that's a reference to. 